You're listening to Music Mythology. My name is Sam Romo, and let's talk about some music. <laughs> it's really funny. He was a nice guy, real nice guy. He does the radio for the Seattle Mariners now. I mean, it's, oh, it's like a wow. big deal. Dang. Great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I got called up to the majors. <laughs> All right. Are well, you ready? I'm ready, man. Cool. Let's do it. Episode 11. Um, Sam Romo sitting down with uh, my buddy Ben. Going to talk about Led Zeppelin. Um, particularly the early days and the first album is the focus today. Um, I guess I'll just start off with when it was released. It was released uh, January 12th in 69. That's in the U.S. And it was released uh, towards the end of March in the U.K. Um, the most interesting thing that I thought is from the beginning is from reading the, that book. Um, um, oh, my gosh. What was it called? When Giants when Walk the Earth. Giants Walk the Earth. Um, you know, you... I, I learned more of, uh, I mean, clearly you learn more of their <laughs> beginnings and everything about them from a book like that. But it was, um, you kind of, I, I better understood like John Paul Jones and Jimmy Page, like way better. Like oh, understanding, yeah. cause I, I, of all of them, I had more familiarity with Page just because of the Yardbirds. Sure. Know? But, uh, understanding their mentality at the time they were both you know session musicians in bands in and out of band you know and they they'd kind of gone through the circuit and they're they're wanting something new they're wanting to just do something without having to have a huge critical success maybe they just wanted to do something that they they liked and um so like with this album like they they didn't even release i knew like they didn't release a single when they first released it in right. the u.s um it wasn't until they released in the uk that that they decided to do it and jimmy page didn't even want to do it kind of originally which i thought that was interesting but i felt uh, the reason why i bring it up in the beginning is i feel like it kind of sets the tone of their mentality of like I, we want to push stuff out we want to make something new but maybe not keeping in in line with the normal dynamics that we've been accustomed to. Cause I mean, at that time it was 69. I mean, they've been doing it for a decade, you know, or so. Or oh yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, a, a lot of the, uh, releasing a single, you know, a lot of that was pressure from their label in the UK. And uh, I know page was against it. Peter Grant, their manager yeah. was against it and they kind of caved. And, uh, you know, they didn't go into this in When Giants Walk the Earth, but I always thought the idea to release Good Times, Bad Times as the lead single was kind of funny because that's that was the most unique song on the album. I mean, it, that sound had not really been done too much before. Mm. Um, so I always thought it was kind of a slight middle finger, like, okay, we'll give you a single, but it's mm. going to be something completely different that's that's not really been heard of on the radio before. Mm. <laughs> but, yeah. Well, and I, I was also considering that too, of why they picked those two. Because um, Good Times, Bad Times, the, uh, the chorus, I feel like has the most... Um, it's the catchiest one. It's the one that you could sing. You know, you could actually uh, not. It won't just be subtly stuck in your head. It's like right. it, it, that's that's a very catchy. Yeah, it can be course. an earworm. Yes, uh, but the the others they're either slower. They're they're covers. They're blues. Um, they're, they're, they're slower, or they're more. Um, they're probably not as commercially uh, warm because they're uh, like days and confused. It's psychedelic or it's sexual, and maybe they didn't think that was the time, especially for right. first first album, you know, first swing at things. <laughs> like let's let's keep it with the the good times. Let's keep it with the the high energy stuff, and right. the, the rock, because. Um, 
Yeah, I know. That's very high energy. It is. It is. It, it's a great beginning too. It's like, oh yeah, because it, it sets the tone of what's different. You know, it's like we're not just we're not just a, a, a slow crawl blues band. We're not a a, a, um, a thrasher band. It's like we're, we're a little bit of of it all. We like to. They have the the blues foundation, but they have the the high energy guitar and the high energy vocal. And, and one other one other thing uh, uh, going into this album. Uh, that I really appreciate is is how it's been produced about how you, when you listen to it you can hear every part super clear I mean especially the bass that that's probably my my most impressive thing out of how it's been mixed is no matter what so you can find John, John Paul Jones like audibly like at any point so it's it very well mixed it's very even um, but being very um, just high energy and vibrant I don't know. Um, oh, I, I completely agree. And and I think that uh, Jimmy Page having that background with John Paul Jones, kind of seeing him in studios, playing on other people's stuff mm-hmm. with him in sessions uh, and knowing how talented that John Paul Jones was, not just on bass, but I mean, on anything that can yeah. possibly have music come from it. Right. Um, I, I think Jimmy Page having such a heavy hand in the production and knowing what he had in John Paul Jones really led to that, mm. uh, where he knew he could safely accentuate the bass because it was going to be so flawless. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. That's and, true. And, 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 you know, if, of course, since it's you and me, we got to bring the Beatles into it somehow. Right. But, <laughs> you know, even the early Beatles albums, now granted the technology was a little bit different because yeah. it was still mostly four track, right. but it, you know, the, the Paul's bass gets lost. And, yeah. And, and a lot of the, I mean, right. really up through rubber soul, yeah. there's, there's, it's hard to pick out. And I mean, I swear they either didn't have a mic on Ringo's kick drum or they didn't, <laughs> or maybe he just wasn't using it. But, yeah. but yeah. And it, I think they did a great job on Led Zeppelin one in uh, allowing everyone kind of their moments to shine in each song, just through the way everything was mic'd and produced and yeah. put together. Well, and I think you're also seeing the concept of a, of a, musician setting up the the um the concept you, you have a a full-fledged experienced musician who's been in the studio has been in the clubs been in the the houses jamming he's been on his own everything and now he's been through it and he's ready to i don't want to deal with the regular dynamics i want something new and um but more than that, he wants something different and, and, and different, I guess, to a musician, it's always going to be a next level of complexity. Right. So I think to him, the next level of complexity isn't what, what does the listener want to hear? It's what is me, an experienced musician, what would I find absolutely nuts? Um, because at this point, you have people playing instruments backwards on tape. You got the, uh, 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 all sorts of new instruments incorporated uh, from other cultures. But what's next? You know, what, what, what's going to be uh, prime, you know, next level for a, a, a true musician at this point? And I feel like that's what it is. It's become you become a, an audiophile. You become obsessed with being perfect. And, and, and I think that's that's the next level of producing the next type of uh, quality of music is you give every musician a, a clear voice in the song. You, you know, and, and like him, if he's the lead guitarist and he wants a strong uh, beat 
and he wants a, a strong uh, backbone to the song, which is going to be the bass. So he he wants that bass man to be strong. He wants him to be pronounced. And he wants him to be the 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 heart of the song, and it can't just get washed away, you know. And and what you were just saying, you know, it, some of it might have been old technology or uh, um, an older preference for music. I don't want so much bass in my song. Right. I don't. I don't want that. And especially nowadays, that's like that's foundational. Oh that, yeah, that's needed. Absolutely. Um, but I think this is kind of the beginnings of, of of someone with a next level ear introducing that and be like, no, the bass needs to pop. You know that that needs to shine more. And um, like what I've seen in, in interviews and in, in the documentaries of, on Zeppelin. Is that's how a lot of people describe their what their their style, anyways? Is they were one upping each other, right? And it's like you know, it's like I'll do a killer, you know, solo, and then you howl and yell in the background like no one's ever heard, and then uh, you know, Bonzo go nuts in the background, oh, yeah. and it. But it's like they, they, but that's that's what I mean. It's like when you get good, uh, you then you try to become great, right? And, and the best way you do that is you push yourself. You have four great musicians and a, a musician like Paige or, well, and John Paul Jones that super experienced and and are ready to produce and and produce things differently. I think this is that that next level of, of potential. And then with technology improving, this is 69. I mean, by, like we were just talking about the Beatles, I mean, you also I know I know Paul was more involved by the, the later ends, <laughs> right? So yeah, it might make more sense that the bass is easier to hear. Um, but it, I mean, you listen to um, um, "Come Together" or or "She's So uh, I, I Want You," "She's So Heavy." It's like you got you can hear it, and it's like crawling in the background, or oh, yeah. you know, it's super fast and weird um, and funky, um, and it, it gets better. So yeah, I don't know preference or technology, but either way, the way Page was wanting it to be mixed or, or the way that the, they, I mean, I'm sure John Paul Jones had a voice in it too. Oh yeah. Um, of wanting to hear himself and it be uh, a, a full part of the song. I don't know. It, it's, it's just definitely stood out to me that they, it wasn't just a, a, a wash. It wasn't just like a, a, a wall of sound. I mean, you could pick apart the bricks in that wall, you know, and really focus on the parts of it. I don't know. I definitely appreciate it. Appreciate that about how their music's produced. Yeah. And, and, and I could, to kind of piggyback off the technology argument, you know, what had been happening, uh, when eight track and even 16 track, uh, technology came around, people were using that to create new noises, like playing stuff backwards mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. And I, and I think it took, um, exactly what you were saying, Jimmy Page, someone who is a musician who knows what he wants. It took him to use that technology to just make the old sound uh, more prevalent. Mm. You know, it's yeah. it's it wasn't it wasn't a ground. I mean, it's a groundbreaking idea that shouldn't have been right. Right. Like yeah, it, it yeah, should it shouldn't have taken that to realize that. You know, having having the drums on its own track, having the bass on its own track and having it mixed in a way to where you can hear them and just pick it out. Right. I mean, if you look at good times, bad times, half the fun in that song is listening to the kick drum. <laughs> I, I mean, and, and yeah. you know, Bonham was playing it with one foot. I mean, he was heel towing. So it's fast. But, rabbit, but but yeah, but I mean, it sounds like a machine gun. Yeah, it's it sounds like audio. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I mean, it seriously sounds like the gun noises from a World War II movie. <laughs> yeah, that had been, you yeah, know, and it's no, and it's not a devil bass pedal. No, either. it's not. I yeah. mean, he was just so, so, so fast. That's so I great. Mean, <laughs> I, the most talented thing.
thing in Led Zeppelin was probably Bonham's right foot. I mean, it's (laughs) not to take away from anyone else, but yeah, it's, it's just insane. And then, uh, you know what, uh, again, kind of piggying back on piggybacking on what you were saying, I, I, I had a coach, uh, growing up who said that, um, it takes, it only takes, or to get good, you only have to imitate, but to be great, you have to create. Mm. And, uh, you know, and, and you and I both know this because we've seen a million concerts and listened to a million songs. You can hear covers of songs that are incredibly well done, mm. but it's, it's kind of an easier well done to get to right. than if you're, you know, on the cusp, on the cutting edge of something oh, yeah. and are able to create something brand new. And I, and I think, um, this album had a perfect balance of that. Mm. Uh, especially for a debut album yeah. in that they, they did have some of the new stuff like the beat and that's kind of stuff in good times, bad times. But, you know, even using the, as my dad would say, fiddle bow on the, uh, <laughs> on the Telecaster in uh-huh. days to confused and, and a couple other songs. Yeah. People had done that, but I don't think it had been put to tape yet mm. at the point. And so, right. and it's, that's a creative thing that, um, you know, not for everyone. And it, what, it doesn't apply in a lot of other genres of music. Mm. Uh, and I'm sure somewhere there's a cellist that's rolling over in their grave <laughs> thinking about it. But, uh, but you know, it was something new. And they had the, uh, the gumption to put it on a record. And it, and it, it was great. I mean, yeah. it, it really set the tone. I mean, it, you, you said it earlier, but this album set the tone for so much about Led Zeppelin. Not only in the sound... Uh, but in the production and the management, yeah, all of that. I mean, and it's just it's cool. Yeah, it's just, it's just cool. Yeah. Well, and 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 yeah, and the fact that uh, the band was, I mean, a majority of the band was so experienced. I mean, that, that's why they because it's like uh, I can't remember who said it. I don't know if it was Zig Ziglar or what, but you know, it's like that classic quote where it's like before you can uh, uh, invent, you have to master the foundations first or whatever. And and I mean, you just said something similar, but I mean they they've already done that. And just like Hendrix, you know, being a, 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 a part of a band, I mean, he was with uh, little Richard you right. know? and, and, and he was over it because, and little Richard was over him because he, he could tell cause he was erupting <laughs> on stage. You're like, Hey man, it's not what you're supposed to be doing. I'm the, I'm the, the centerpiece. What's going right. on here. And, and cause that's what you just, you start to bust out. You start to bust out of your lane because you've just, you've done it all, you know, or you feel like you've done it all. And, and I, and I think that it is the, the, the big characteristic to their personality of, of, of invention uh, at the time is that it wasn't just, yeah, we know what we're doing so we can churn out anything that would be half good or considered good to a normal person. It was what, what would impress the musicians? What would just blow people's minds? And, and so like, yeah, it's like the, there's all sorts of weird things at the time you're at the late sixties. That's when it was like the height of musical experimentation, <laughs> but, but yeah, using a violin bow with, uh, uh, with like a wah-wah and a, uh, um, different distortions to make it sound like it's moaning, it's groaning, it's a background howl. It's a, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, he even put like echoes in reverse, you know, just to make those things just so unearthly and so you know just make you ponder what's going on in the song because you can understand it just by 
you know, feeling by like what, cause like in a horror movie, you know, the, the creaking of a <laughs> boat or, you know, and it's supposed to make you so uneasy. Yeah. That's what it's, it's projecting. It's what it's, right. it's a palpable feeling that he's communicating with. But I think that just like with Hendrix, you know, Paige, that's, that's what he had become is he was just a, a, a master communicator in a different way. It's like, you might want to, you might be great at singing, speaking, making a speech. I know music and I know how to turn it upside down, inside out, invert it, flip it over, put it in another dimension, bring it back backwards. <laughs> and, and, and that's what I'm going to do today. And I want to do something that's going to melt your face while I melt my finger, you know? <laughs> and, and, and that's what, you know, good times, bad times. That's a great opener is because you get, you get that great balance and the understanding of the band, but Paige still cuts through with that finger melting guitar. Oh, yeah. And so it's like, it's not, this isn't your yard birds bag. This isn't, this isn't even Hendrix. This is, this is for people focused and they have a plan, but then you have, uh, uh, musicians that are just killer. I mean, I mean, I, I just, I don't know. It, it's not controversial to say that they were phenomenal, but, <laughs> but when you, when you listen to it, and you might think, you know, um, that you could be told a guitar solo is coming up, but then when you hear it, it's just so, it's so fast, it's so uh, swift and 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 accurate and killer and uh, you know or aggressive or, or or palpable in just a a primal like an intense way. But it's just I don't know. It, it just definitely sets the tone that this isn't your typical '60s rock. This is you know cutting edge or something different. Um, by but still respecting the boundaries kind of of blues rock and uh those foundations in folk <laughs> right and i think a lot of that it, it makes it more impressive because they recorded this album relatively quickly right uh there was only 36 total hours of studio time spread over a few weeks but like the the dazed and confused that made the album uh, that was two takes i mean that was the second take oh, is wow. the one they used and it's seven minutes of weirdness <laughs> that they completely nailed the second time through wow. in that, you know, and I'm, you know, it had to be mixed and everything, I but, sure. but I mean, even still. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you hear stories and I think one thing that held, uh, you know, a name that we're going to hear more later, but something that held Jeff Beck back mm. from becoming Jimmy page, mm -hmm. uh, as far as career trajectory, right. I mean, as guitarists, they're, evenly matched, I would say, but, right. uh, you know, Jeff Beck was such a perfectionist. He would spend hours and hours and hours and hours in the studio, just doing every single song. And, and, mm. um, later in the seventies, you know, he was, he was using, he was almost becoming Peter Gabriel where it was taking him 200 hours of studio time to get, to get an eight track album out. Mm. And, uh, and I think that also, I mean, again, kind of getting ahead of myself here, but I think that led to some tensions in the Yardbirds as well. Mm, um, and yeah. the kind of the personal relationship between Jeff Beck and Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Page. Oh, I'm sure. I'm well, also I, Jimmy Hendrix. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure. Well, and cause you, you already had a good amount of personality in the Yardbirds. Oh yeah. And then when they got success and commercial success and then experimental success, you know, it's like. It was like the Beatles during the White Album period. It's like, all right, we're on a new kind of wave, and I either divvy off and go do my own thing because we're clearly a little bit different, you know, from each other. Because I mean, it, it 
because yeah, it's like Jimmy Page is his own personality, Clapton's his own personality, Bex is his own personality. They got their own styles. The ones you know, a little more intense. One's a little more uh, <laughs> down the middle. One's a little slower, but it's all a little different. But they, and I'm sure they all work different, you know. And so, and who knows? Who knows what was going on? But no, oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> but at that point, um, no, I, they, they, and and we'll 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 definitely bring Beck back up. Um, well, I guess you want to get to the next one because um, uh, I mean we'll 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 definitely get back to Beck, but it's. Uh, yeah, I don't know what this else to say. Um, because uh, he, because he he came out with an album first, right? That truth. That's what I was trying to think of. Uh, yeah, truth. Um, which I, and I'll touch back on that one. Um, in uh, towards oh, yeah. the end of the album. Um, but yeah, like Beck was the first one to to put out something of his own, which included a lot of other people, you know, yeah, people from bass, including and, John Paul Jones. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, and, John Paul Jones played bass and page and, 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 and Jimmy page. Yeah, played, page helped, right. Yeah. Uh, 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 Bex, uh, Bex Bolero. Bolero. Yeah. Um, which he incorporated back into this album too. Um, right. <laughs> As an aside, by the way, I, uh, I happen to be a very big Rod Stewart fan. Okay. Go yeah. figure. Right. Um, and it, you know, my mom, and my aunt both love Rod Stewart. So I was brought up with, you know, Maggie May and do yeah. you think I'm sexy and hot <laughs> legs and that kind of stuff. And uh, in preparing for this, I went ahead and listened to truth all the way through. Mm. And I had forgotten how good Rod Stewart was when he was still a rock and roll guy and not such a pop rock pop person. Guy. Yeah. Right. And the uh, faces. Oh yeah. Period, yeah. Yeah. With, with, uh, cause I think he did two albums with, Jeff Beck group and then, you know, a handful with faces and then kind mm-hmm. of did his own thing. And, uh, I mean, that, that dude's got some pipes. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it was uh, just, just a little brief Rod Stewart appreciation moment. Yeah. That's all <laughs> <laughs> before the, uh, pink jumpsuits and feathered hair. Before but, the seventies got him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Before the cocaine and disco balls took over. <laughs> but, um, but uh, and one thing I did want to mention quickly is um, something about this album. And this, uh, you know, again, we can kind of sprinkle this in as we go too. But uh, Led Zeppelin toured, of course, when they released the album mm-hmm. and they did tour the U.S. And I think they were able to handle it better because Jimmy Page and John Paul Jones had both toured the U.S. before. Mm-hmm. Um but, you know, them touring, and I, I know that you're going to say, like, well, duh, that's why people tour. But them touring did uh, lead to a heavily increased album sales. Mm. Again, duh. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the whole thing is because, you know, this album got pretty mixed reviews from right. the regular critics. But when people learned how good and how explosive they were live, Mm. you know, that shot the record sales up. But it also meant that they were they were one of the first bands to make a ton of money touring right from the get go. Mm. You know, even the Beatles, it was kind of a a little bit of a break even, maybe Uh uh, those first couple of tours. But I mean, right from right from the first pitch, I I mean, Zeppelin was was really making a lot of money touring Mm. because they were so, so electric live. Mm. And that's that's something I just thought was cool. And I, I don't know if they could have done that if Jimmy Page didn't already have that experience. Right. Uh, Because, you know, Plant and Bonham both especially had never really done that. And, and, you know, in When Giants Walk the Earth, it talks about the nerves. Um, I would like to think that's why they did the drugs, although I know that's not it. But, um, (laughs) 
you know, I think having kind of the calm, cool, collected level headedness of John Paul Jones and then the experience of handling tour life from Jimmy Page probably helped Bonham and Plant, uh, you know, settle, come back down to earth more easily. I imagine it's kind of like the aggressive dedication of like of like Lennon and the Beatles but then you have a calm George who knows music theory in the beginning better than all of them and kind of knows what he's about but not not necessarily but you know I mean because I think that's a dynamic you need in a, in a group especially a, a group that's together all the time working constantly right. you need someone that's the driving force with experience you need someone that's calm with experience and you need someone that's dedicated to uh working for writing. I mean, it's, it's all interchangeable and mixable, but I feel like those two dynamics are really key in a really uh, healthy band or healthy group is you have someone that's, you have two, two sides of the brain. You have right. like the, the, the side that they're both really aware, smart and dynamic in their, in the, in making music, but you have one that's, you know, constantly want to push to what's possible. And the other one that's, you know, keeping it in a healthy framework, you know, I don't know. I just feel like it's a this certain respect you have to have, you know, about where you're going versus where you are and self-awareness, you know, as a musician. You almost have to think of it like if you were putting a team together for a bank heist or something. Like, right. you know, yeah. Yeah, everyone kind of has a role. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and I think, I, you know, I think they nailed it. Other bands not always successful at right. that, right? I mean, yeah. you know, you hear horror stories about people hating each other at the end of tours and that oh, kind of yeah. stuff. And Egos going crazy. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, Zeppelin, I think, weathered the storm well. Mm. Um, I don't, you know, I don't know. Could it have gone beyond after John Bonham died? I don't know. But at least for uh, the touring part of it from the late 60s through the 1977 tour, Mm -hmm. I think that they handled each other about as well as a band could be expected to. You know, is that book... Uh, when when giants walk the earth, it obviously didn't hold anything back. Uh, talking about mm-hmm. the antics on the road and that kind of stuff, right. and so you think if there had been fist fights and drinks being thrown at each other and a lot of animosity, that it would have been brought up. And and I, you know, I think its absence says a lot. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, and I watched a couple of documentaries with interviews with them and and roadies and people that they were friends with, and they, you know. That, that legacy of them being, you know, just chaos and chaos on the road and bringing, you know, the rock and roll, you know, dramatic, you know, explosion to your town, whatever, wrecking everything in their sight. You know, I, I, a lot of that was, was like telephone is a legacy of what they could do <laughs> uh, or maybe what they did on at one point, you know. Um, but then some of them, you know, they said like after a while and they got used to it, it's like sometimes they wouldn't be an after party. They would just in the show and go have tea, you know, but sometimes they were crazy. So, I, you know, it's just uh, different eras, different times. And I'm sure there's just a lot of influences everywhere they went. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I was also, I, I didn't look into this, but was it normal for an album to be released in America before UK when it was a UK group? Not really. And the, the one thing that came with that is that, um, Peter Grant, their manager, insisted mm-hmm. on negotiating their own distribution deal with an American label um, oh. in America. Mm. And so uh, the album was released on Atlantic in, in America, and uh, Atlantic had a long, long history um, yeah. of, of 
really bringing new and kind of groundbreaking artists to the forefront. And I always think of Ray Charles, uh, he was, he yeah. was uh, an early Atlantic signing. Yeah. Cause I'd read about the earlier years of the label and how what made them different was that, uh, their, their scouts or the, the, I can't remember their names, but the two people, um, at the time that were primarily, primarily in charge yeah. of Turkish fine. brothers is what they, they were mm. brothers and of Turkish <laughs> descent. But like they, they were given, they, they didn't have to get things approved. It's like if they found a talent and, and they were convinced by their ear that they were, they had potential, then they, they would do it. They, they made the deals and that their deals had higher royalty percentages than the typical deals at the time. Like when it would be a maximum royalty of like 5% or something like that, they were doing like seven to 9%. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I'd read about that, but that's what, that was like a, a unique thing about the, that label at the time. Yeah. And, and a lot of British bands normally tried to stick with a British label, mm, um, right. even to handle the American distribution. Um, but, and that's why if you look, you know, a lot of times with British bands, either the album was released much earlier in the UK or it was released only in the UK. And then there was some comparable, but differently named album that was released in the United States. You said with the Beatles. Yeah, again, the Beatles. Yeah. yeah, you think, you know, Beatles six was something that was a thing in the United States and not a thing mm. in in the UK. Yeah. Uh, and where it's like uh, meet the Beatles and the right. America was totally different than the right. original in the UK. Yeah. So it's it's crazy, but they insisted on on negotiating their own hmm. uh, oh. distribution with Atlantic and. Well, it worked out well. I do remember, I think it was in the book that uh, Grant or someone mentioned, maybe it was Paige, that they knew like a, a, a cue to them of success, like mass success and commercial financial success was America. Like you make it in the UK, that's cool. But if you make it in America, you're right. golden. Um, so I, I imagine that was probably a priority too is – kind of belittling their immediate market because we can get it over. You know, it's kind of like if we can get someone across the pond to like it, then they're probably going to love it here. So right. why worry as much? You know, maybe that that was the 40 chess move that they're <laughs> trying to make. Yeah, I'm sure there's some some joke in there about the uh, U.S. bailing England out of World War II or something like that. But <laughs> no, it's uh, it's 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 just fascinating, and and I like the business side of it uh, just because that's a little bit. I mean, not massive U.S. tours or anything, but you know, I am a lawyer, and most of what I do is business related, mm-hmm. and so I get fascinated about yeah. the contracts and the distribution yeah. list. But why did he sue him? I know, right? <laughs> oh yeah, no, there'll there'll be plenty of lawsuits to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> well, you want to get to the next track? Yeah, let's let's do it. Uh, next one is, babe. I'm gonna leave you. Um, this one it's got that slow acoustic buildup. Um, Along with the vocal buildup, you know, the calm, calmer, uh, bluesy voice and then getting into like a more of a howl towards the end. Right. Uh, it's a great song. Classic song. Um, it's another good showcase of Paige's uh, multi-guitar um, or, or really production mind. Of, of, right. Of, I'm not just going to be satisfied with one guitar, maybe switching um, to different measures for the for the whole composition of the song. I'm going to switch to a... a, a a guitar with a slide and then switch to, you know, all the things we talked about, a guitar with a bow. But with this one, it's just acoustic to, um, I think this one might have a mandolin or something, or maybe it's just a different uh, 
key to that acoustic sound. I, I think it, it almost sounds like it's capoed on like the ninth fret or something mm. like that at one point. It's, it's, it's way up the neck. Yeah, but it's, <laughs> it's multiple. It's just a, a variety of guitars on this one, which is nice. It's It, it gives it a lot of depth because it not only just builds up, but then once it builds up and erupts, you have a variety of, of instrumentation and guitar you know, changes. Right. And, uh, I, you know, we mentioned that there would be more lawsuits. Uh, <laughs> so, babe, I'm going to leave you the um, there was a little bit of a miscommunication is what it was, because Joan Baez had recorded it first. Right. And I from what I understand, Jimmy Page and John Paul Jones both both liked Joan Baez's version. And that's mm. in that acoustic buildup at the beginning. It It's a folky chord progression. Right. Right. And so you can hear the kind of Joan Baez folk, whatever. Right. But on the Baez album, it, it said it was a traditional arrangement. Uh, the problem is the song was actually written by a woman named Anne Breeden. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. B-R-E-D-O-N. And um, she was not given credit originally because Zeppelin just said it was a traditional arrangement. So I don't I can't rem- recall if Anne Breeden filed an actual lawsuit or if there was just, you know, uh, some sort of letter sent to Zepp's management. Mm. But. Eventually, on re-releases, even as early as the 70s, you started seeing, you know, traditional and and Breeden arranged by Jimmy Page or uh, whatever. Interesting. And, uh, yeah, so now uh, in 1990 is when the official change to the song credit happened. Mm. And every reissue since 90, 1990 is credited to Breeden, Page, and Plant. Huh. So they're uh, the two tracks in. We already got we already got arguments over who <laughs> who wrote what. Well, it's kind of interesting, too, that they didn't just go ahead and give a, even a partial credit. You know, I, I mean, however you would do that at the time. I mean, now digitally, it's a little easier to document that kind of thing. <laughs> right. But um, just because I'm, a, I'm trying to try think almost every artist that on their early albums, I mean, Bowie, Hendrix, the Beatles, they covered. They covered people oh, sure. and then gave them the credit. Like, it's not my song, but I love that song. Yeah. Um, I mean, all of them did that. So I don't know. Was it a, was it just a, a cocky thing? Was it a, we don't really care? Because like I was saying before, was that the mentality? Like, let's just make something. Let's mix it up. Let's just have fun and enjoy it and do what we want to do. And maybe just kind of throw away the normal, you know, and, and, and be a little more devil may care. Be a little more just whatever kind of. You know, if it comes back to us, who knows? Yeah. I don't know. It's just kind of odd because it's not like that wasn't typical. Oh, yeah. But why not just own it? Yeah, I don't know. And and especially with Plant and John Paul, I mean, I'm sorry, Jimmy Page and John Paul Jones, who had done enough studio work and session work to know that it's important to give credit where credit is due. And then the great irony of it all um, is that since uh, John Bonham died, especially Led Zeppelin has been so, so stingy and so picky about who they license their songs to. Oh, right. You know, the movie Dazed and Confused couldn't use the Zeppelin song because Zeppelin didn't didn't allow it. it. And and even like if you have an Amazon Echo and you say, Alexa, play Dazed and Confused, it's not available. It's only available through premium. And if you you go back and watch movies, you know, you can think of some that have Zeppelin songs. Silver Linings Playbook has a great um, 
kind of interlude with what is and what should never be. But it costs like a billion dollars. But, but yeah, it's very yeah. expensive. Well, like the Beatles. Um, but because like I, uh, uh, I remember who I was talking about this with, um, but like if you go on rock band, because like I grew up with rock band in my generation, um, but they, they, I, I, I could always tell what artist was the really expensive licensed our artists because they were never on those games. Right. And you'd be like, Oh, what about that song? They have, you know, stairway to heaven. They have when the levee breaks. I'm like, Hell no. <laughs> like, no, they couldn't afford that crap. That's why it was such a big deal when Beatles rock band came out. Yeah. It was like, oh my God. You know, Danny Harrison is like actually leaning up on it and help, you know, they want to make it, they want to make it happen. And then they made it and it was like phenomenal. And they had every Beatles song on, it. but it's like, yeah, Zeppelin's the other one. Right? It's like it's so it's gotta be crazy expensive. Yeah, and it's um, it's it's. I I can tell you. Here's the frame of reference that I have. Um, there's an episode of The Office, if you're an Office fan, oh, yeah. where Michael sings a little bit of Two Tickets to Paradise, the mm-hmm. Eddie Money song. Um, that license to use that little bit that Michael sang. He didn't even, they didn't even yeah. play the song. They just, just that one little, that bit. cost $60,000, wow. <laughs> 60,000 United States dollars. That's nice. Well, isn't it like any, any actual form of usage of like a Beatles song in a commercial or in a movie or whatever commercially used media it's like a million dollars. Like there's some kind of like oh yeah, minimum it's, it's rate something or insane. Something. And that, and that, that's you know that's what I mean. I'm not I'm not putting down Eddie Money. I mean I, <laughs> yeah, I have no, no, you yeah. know whatever. I like Eddie Money sometimes. But I get but, what you mean. But like, if Eddie Money's pulling sixty grand for someone just singing along to yeah. his song, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Imagine what what Zeppelin and the Beatles and people who are way 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 you know are going to be remembered as larger figures right. in music. Again, well, nothing against Eddie Money. <laughs> well, maybe. That 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 hard line approach also came from them being worn out of having the battle be. with their own stuff, but they could have just given credit and not <laughs> I know. dealt with that. I know. It's very funny. It's very interesting. Like back and forth, double like problem of theirs. It's mm-hmm. like we won't copy your stuff just stop copying others. I'm like, well, we did that fifty years ago, so give us more money. <laughs> Um, you have anything else on this one? I, I don't think I've got anything else on Babe. I'm going to leave you now. Yeah, that's a it's a good one. The uh, next track is "You Shook Me." Um, this one's written by Willie Dixon. Uh, Willie wrote a lot of classic blues songs um, that a lot of people are probably familiar with, like um, uh, "Hoochie Coochie Main" uh, for uh, um, for Muddy. For Muddy. We have uh, "Backdoor Man." Backdoor man, which uh, is a, I normally don't like when the West Coast American kind of white boy bands do covers of those kinds mm-hmm. of songs, but I do like the Doors oh, version yeah. of Backdoor Man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Morrison's dramatic singing oh, yeah. adds to it for sure. Um, yeah, he actually, I found out that he he has an album. Um, Willie Dixon has an album called I Am the Blues. I've got it on vinyl, man. Nice. Yeah, I need to show you my collection sometime. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's cool. Where it, coll- it collects all the songs that you you're probably familiar with, but you didn't know that he wrote. Same with that. Uh, there's another album that we talked about that was like that. The guy that wrote a lot of Elvis's songs. Yeah, um, I forget um, his name. I'm blanking on it too. Um, I can't remember who wrote "Reconsider, Baby." I know. I don't think, well, I don't know. I'm not going to speculate because I don't want to be wrong. But yeah, so You Shook Me, like you said, written for Willie Dixon. It was actually written for Muddy Waters. It's Otis Blackwell. Otis, yeah, okay. That's the Elvis guy. That makes sense. Um, 
So you showed me it has a it has another element. And, and by the way, credit where credit is due. Um, Led Zeppelin did properly credit Willie Dixon on this yes. one, which is well, nice. Well so they, they avoided litigation there. <laughs> Um, but there was kind of another level of pseudo plagiarism because bringing Jeff back back into this right. fray, uh, in truth, which was released in July of 68, mm-hmm. I believe. And, and yeah. like you said, this was January of 69. And uh, but Jeff Beck had a version on truth with Rod Stewart on lead vocals. Yeah. And the arrangement is. Pretty similar. Yeah. I mean, in, in, and even, I mean, John Paul Jones played the organ on Jeff Beck's version oh, and played really? the organ on Zeppelin's version. Wow. And if you listen to it, and, you know, that's one thing that got reviewers mad because um, people reviewing Led Zeppelin one inevitably, and it, I mean, you can't blame them, right? But they inevitably compared it to Truth. Yeah. And Jeff Beck was upset with Jimmy Page. Oh, yeah. And, I, I mean, it's pissed. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I, I don't blame him too much. I mean, I, cause oh, even yeah. though the song's a cover, it's still, the arrangement is something of a personal touch and, yeah. and well, Zeppelin they, did take it. It's also, this wasn't like a scenario with the Beatles where like they would, you know, it's like Yardbirds super group, whatever you, you have a lot of people, I'm sure coming up with their own stuff, keeping it to themselves, but they weren't in a, they didn't have a label together. Right. You know, it's like when the Beatles had Apple records, I mean, it, it kind of you could work on your stuff together but you kind of didn't know if you wanted to present it because then it became the businesses right and so with them i'm sure it was much easier to jack this that's cool yeah i'll do that with you this week and next week i'm gonna do it with plant we'll see what happens yeah um i'm sure they're much easier to to slide into that easier because there's nothing on paper here it's like, if you do it, we'll do it. But hey, I, I helped you with that. So I'm going to give it to myself too. Just give me a year and we'll do it again. I agree. <laughs> it's a, it's a weird, weird dynamic. I do. I do love this song. It's, it's one of my favorites on the album. There's, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a great, great version and maybe even two versions on their BBC sessions album. Oh, right. Yeah. And, uh, which that's a great album. Oh, it is. It's so good. That black all, and white one. Right. Yeah, that one's all, good. One. All three versions of Communication Breakdown are neat. <laughs> but You Shook Me, and that was that was one that was uh, an early staple of concerts that allowed for a lot of uh, improvisation. Oh, really? There are I, – I was kind of on a deep dive uh, over the past couple of days, mm-hmm. and I, I wish I could find um, a sound. All I could find is someone talking about it, but – um, you know, apparently John Paul Jones would take bass solos, which had to be pretty unusual oh, wow. <laughs> when you're surrounded by that kind of firepower normally. But um, well, well, again, I mean, especially I, I think that that's a huge, huge to their dynamic is that they were just they're all so good that they all gave each other time to belt. You know, it's right. like just, it's like you can go nuts, but then I'm next in line, buddy. Like, you know, there's no like. Uh, you're the you you're the wild card you, you do the solo and, and i'll just keep timing it's like no no, no i'm gonna keep timing and then once you're done with your thing i'm gonna go nuts too you yeah. know like everybody had their thing so it's like surprising but not whenever you know bottom has a five minute drum solo <laughs> where you can't keep up with what's doing what and then uh yeah and, and that john paul jones in the same light would would have a bass break or something like that it just makes sense because they're Again, that's what they seem to be is like the musicians musician. It's like, let's, I I know you like this. So let's, let's single it out and crank it up. You know, it's like they they were like really unapologetic about that. And it's like, 
you might want a three minute blues song. We're going to give you a seven minute blues song with like three blues songs in it. You know, it's like, because it's like, it's like that, that's what they wanted. You know, that, yeah. that was, that was energizing to their ear. So it's like, I love that. Let's keep it going. You know, and me as a musician and a, especially as a musician that likes to just create and jam, you know, that's huge. I love, that's why I love jazz albums because a lot of them do have long running songs that there's a lot of changes. There's a lot of, uh, uh, variety in it. And, and it's like, that's what they wanted. They wanted, they wanted variable madness in a, in a, in a clean, in a, in a, in a presentable rock form. That was like, you know, you're, you're, you get what we're going for, but we're going to take it to another level and run it. Right. And even longer, you know, and, and, you know, like really on the nose, especially if you listen to early Sonny Rollins albums, speaking of jazz, Mm. you know, Sonny Rollins, great saxophonist, a Mohawk pioneer. Like if you find pictures of him from the fifties, he had a Mohawk. It's hilarious. Um, But he played, he played a lot of, and you know, jazz and blues, there's a lot of crossover and uh, Sonny Rollins had a lot of good covers of blues based jazz songs that he Mm. had. And if you listen to the early Sonny Rollins albums, it, it, has a very similar dynamic mm. uh, to this, and and one the the last thing I have really to say about you shook me is one of my favorite things about it is it's the first introduction that Led Zeppelin fans would get to vocals mimicking the guitar. Yes, and that's that's yeah because I have a few more notes, and that that was one of the ones that I have right here is the paralleled vocal to guitar like right. accompaniment that that the the guitar wasn't just a part of the song it was like an ad lib or it was an, an an accompanying vocal it was it was a part of the song and it's not just um and, and they, they would do that in the shows that oh yeah that, that's that was one of their their things that between plant and page that page page would riff off of what he was playing and then he would howl and make noises and the noise they would and they would match each other in tone and in and in length right um to give you that interesting connection that's not always expected you know maybe it is at certain little moments in the song but yeah they had a habit of keeping that up of if we're gonna have a little break here and you're gonna do some moaning for a, for a solid minute i'm just gonna <laughs> do what you're doing too and then it'll you know just like doubling up on a on a, a guitar overdub it's like let's let's add the guitar over it but i'm not gonna do like little you know stuff in the background it's like i'm gonna just do what you're doing add a layer to it and and then, yeah and it's definitely unique and i don't remember they do it more for sure but yeah this is like to me this is the the first look at their foundations and of what they're they're about you know the the blues roots the slow because you know they master that slow crawling beat um oh yeah and it and uh great blues vocals you got um what else on this one you got john paul jones on the organ again uh, a killer uh, harmonica solo. Like, Great harmonica yeah. solo. And that's rare for me to say. I like harmonica, but it's got to be really, really yeah. well, you in, know, and in doses. And in doses, <laughs> yes, absolutely. You know, you can't just bust out and move it around and yeah. and expect that to be amazing. It's like this is I'm with you. very careful, good timing. And, very, and, and this song, it is a very it's like a it's like a prime example of late 60s blues rock it is because you have every type of instrument you would expect you know there's a guitar uh, a smoky vocal a an organ 
a harmonica, and then again that slow crawling beat with oh, the yeah. bass and the, and the drum, just it's hitting perfect. the bejesus out of those drum yeah. skins, but in a in a perfect and controlled way. Yeah. But you know, John Paul, he, he, John Bonham just, I mean, he had one speed, right? I mean, he, he hit the drums as hard as he could every single time and it's perfect. It makes it work. Yeah. And, and this is one of those, because the beat he plays, this is, this is one of those moments where someone as prolific as John Bonham holding back makes you appreciate how good they are even sure. more because yeah. I, I mean, he could have gone nuts, but he played a beat that's simpler than a lot of other beats he, that he played, uh, especially as the band aged, but it fit the song just perfectly. Yeah. And, and good musicians, I think the best musicians play what is needed for the song to be successful. Yeah. They can and, control and, themselves. Exactly. <laughs> and, and John Bonham showed a reservation uh, yeah. in his drumming in here that he failed to show in other parts of his life. But, um, well, but it's, it's just, it's great. Well, and this song was the first song. Cause I, you know, uh, I've heard a lot of Zeppelin tracks throughout my life. Um, but I've never, you know, I've never, like, there's never been someone in my life that's like, you gotta listen to House of the Holy all the way through. It's next, you know, I never had someone that, <laughs> right. that walked me through it or did anything like that. So, um, reading that book, watching some documentaries, watching some concerts and listening to this album and, and the second one, but primarily this one just to be ready for the show um, in order all the way through multiple times. Um, there's a lot of songs in this album I've never heard before just because maybe I heard, I have listened to this album before, but you know, it's fleeting. If it's not, if I didn't keep it in circulation, especially cause me, I mean, I just listen to so much different oh, stuff right. all the time. You and me both. Yeah. So <laughs> it's like, if, if I want to, you know, put it to memory, you know, if it, if it stands out to me, it's like, yeah, I'll cycle that thing through multiple times and it'll get stuck in my brain. Um, but I just never did it with this band, you know, so there's so much music, you know, so, right. And that's what the part of the show is, is me, you know, cueing myself up to, you know, focus and learn more. Um, but in experiencing Zeppelin in this, you know, approach that I hadn't done before, um, this is what we were talking about a little bit before the show, was that prior to that, I, I, when I thought Zeppelin, I really thought Zeppelin four. Oh yeah. I, I think, I think they're, they're the height of the rock days. Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, and when you look at comments that people make about um, people that sound like them, whether you're talking about like Wolf Mother or um, Greta Van Fleet or whatever, though, those bands, like the modern bands that are kind of like them, I feel like almost like they, they build their sound thinking that like, you know, Zeppelin has this rock concept of what they are and then they, they evolved rock, but really it was, they had this respect and foundation in blues right? and then evolved that, you know, into a heavier type of blues in that same line that Hendrix was doing that, you know, Hendrix did the same thing. He, he grew up on that blues. He loved that American blues and, 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 literally turned it upside down and, you know, started just doing things to it that just hadn't been done before, but we're still in the same structures, but just totally different. And, and, and then by the end of his career, it's like, you want to call that blues, but it's like, that's where the foundations are. And the same thing with Zeppelin is uh, you shook me. is kind of that first introduction of saying like, yeah, 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 I know we've shown you the good times, the high energy, the rock, and then the slower and the buildup of babe, I'm going to leave you. It's still rock, you know, but still folkier, but still it's, it's rock. Um, but what you shook me, it's like that 
shakes it all off and brings it back to the core of like, again, that slow crawl, that bluesy sound. And, and it's just, it's them, you know, like that, that, that's the beginning. And, um, for me as a, a first critic, first time critical, you know, listen and assessment, that was a, a, a development for me and my perception of them was realizing like, oh, they weren't just the yardbirds cranking it up and going nuts, you know, and changing it up every album, um, which is a loose perception I had, but it was much more, uh, uh, yeah, blues centric in the beginning, which I just, I don't know, I never really focused on because of the hits that I had been used, right. used to. They were always just such high energy and, and rock. So now I get it much more uh, like in the documentaries and the books, whenever Paige and certain members would get kind of flustered when they would be compared to like Black Sabbath right. or like thrown in the thrasher metal and heavy metal stuff. It's like, no, like those four, those are folk chords or that's blues. Like, what are you talking about? Right. You know? But so it's very interesting. I just never... I never had that in my mind when listening to them. And now it's, it's definitely there. It's, 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 you can't dismiss it. It's like, right. once you're, you know it, um, it's a great song. I, oh, it is. I love it. I, I, I like their version better than the Jeff Beck one, but he, he has the rights to be mad. I, I agree. Right. And I agree. <laughs> and, and, you know, as much, as much as I do love Rod Stewart, I, I mean, you can't, you can't beat plants vocals on this. Right. I mean, I, I love Rod Stewart. I really do. But, yeah. but well, this is a plant that. song. Yeah. It's got, <laughs> he's got that bluesy vocal that you need. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, next up, um, Days and Confused, which might be my favorite um, on the album, just because I, I love how um, out there it is. All the other songs are, you know, high energy and different and developed very well, produced very well. But this one, it's long. It's got um, one. No, just one. Yeah, two. No, just one break. One uh, one long right. break in the middle. Um, and this is where you have Paige using a lot of different effects, using that that wah pedal with the the bow. And just making his, you know, I, I, this is one where they're yawning, they're moaning, where right. Plant would moan and he would make the same sound, but not just with his hand and his guitar, but with the pedal and with the bow. So it's like this eerie banshee. Yeah, like, it's, it's a little you know, ethereal. <laughs> yeah, it's otherworldly, you know, and, and, and the way he produces it. Um, I think actually, I don't, I think Paige and someone else produced this one. Um, I can't remember because uh, I know there's someone else, there's another engineer that helped them. But yeah, there was a guy named Glenn something. Yeah, uh, but it's G L Y N, which I'm assuming is like a Welsh or Gaelic mm. spelling. Um, but but with this one, um, oh, I was gonna say it, it's it's longer. He uses a lot of different effects. Um, man, I just totally blanked on what I was gonna mention. Um, but it's uh, oh man. I can't believe I forgot what I was going to say. That's on me. I interrupted you with the Glenn. <laughs> Sorry about that. It's okay. So I almost turned into an etymology lesson. <laughs> <laughs> but it's uh, it, it, it's just oh, that's what I was going to say. I remember now. Is uh, also the way it's it's edited with the the panning of the guitars oh, yeah. and the panning of those those moans is it, it, it has dimension to it where you know it's not just uh, uh, a band playing and this blues artist, artist vocalist, you know, screaming out and, and yelling and, and singing. It's, it's, you know, it's like, think about that. And they're standing on a plane, they're just standing on a level, but it's like adding, adding those effects and stuff into the break. That's, that's when it's, it adds dimension to the song and the panning and stuff like that. I mean, nowadays it's kind of expected, you know, right. and, and you're doing that, but the, the old school methods with the, with 
tape and just, I don't know. Is it- <laughs> yeah. I mean, doing all this without, without a computer. Yeah. And, uh, and you're right. I mean, this is, it's a more complex, it's a more dynamic song than, than, you know, even you shook me, which as great a song as, as it is, is a lot more static than this. Right. And, and that's, you know, it's good that they have the, kind of diversity of that on the album, but I'm with you. It's a, it's a great song. This is another one that, uh, um, was the subject of a lawsuit though. <laughs> yeah. With the Jack Combs. Yes. Or Jake Combs. Jake Combs. So originally written, um, by Jake Holmes. Well, kind of. And, and I, did you listen to the Jake Holmes yeah, his version? It's different. It, I mean, it, it's, it's different, but I get it. Yeah. Oh, the, 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 like, main structure of it is pretty similar right um but yeah like the a lot of the the vocal i mean the lyrics are definitely been swapped out um but yeah like i had read that this was like he saw him play the or him and the a couple of the yardbirds saw him perform it and they really liked it and then the yardbirds would perform it um live a few times right. and it's even on a couple of their live albums that right. they, they did it and it, it is kind of the the compromise again. I, I'm not going to get too much into it because I, this is a music show and not a law show. But <laughs> you know, one thing that's kind of interesting is the compromise was the credit now says written by Page, inspired by Jake Holmes, uh-huh. and then normally you would see written by Holmes, arranged by Page, or whatever. Mm-hmm. But the inspired by Holmes is kind of a weird. That's not something you see very often I guess because so much of it is different. Right. And I lyrically. think that's what it was, is they could tell that Jimmy Page had tried to change just enough to make yeah. it his own, um, but apparently uh, didn't quite do it enough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, it, and that makes sense. I mean, it's just one of those weird legal things, I'm sure, where there was just a lot of back and forth on oh, how yeah. it would be handled. And, and that's the other thing, too, is at, at this point in the game, you know, Led Zeppelin's the big name. He's not right. the big name. Yeah. So they have more clout to throw around than, yeah. than anything. So it's like those smaller artists, you know, I can only imagine that at some point they're just kind of beat down. And it's like, oh, I'd rather get something than nothing. So I'll just, sure, you know, like a, like on a book where like if you, or like when you, if you redo someone's art, how you would sign, you know, your right. name after whoever. Right. It's like, that's your little thing, but that's all you get. You right. Know? It's like, you're not going to any of the money because it's my art. It's right. just weird. But that's why it's nice to have you here because hey, there's man. an actual legal uh, <laughs> uh, uh, opinion in the room, not just like, oh, that sounds stupid. You yeah. Know? <laughs> I'm with you. Uh, but, you know, this was a concert staple. It was a big yes. crowd pleaser. Yeah, um, sometimes 30 minutes long. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> and even the, the version that actually ended up on How the West Was Won, which is a great live that album. That is yeah. it's, it's got some breaks where they do other stuff, but it's, I mean, it's it's 25 and a half minutes. And uh, and that's the one that made the cut. I mean, you, know, you, you, you think yeah. of the ones that were, were left on the drawing room floor, but... Uh, and this was played, I believe, at every single concert they did, with the exception of some times during a tour when Jimmy Page had broken a finger. Oh. And uh, there was some part of this song that he couldn't do, so they threw a different song in there. Hmm. Uh, but it was uh, a real crowd pleaser. People got into it. Yeah. Page would come out in his crazy jumpsuits and uh, probably like a Stradivarius bow or something like that and and 
and uh, go to well, town. I've actually, I've been uh, with my little band. We've been learning this one, um, a couple of songs off this album. Have you? Yeah, because um, yeah, there's two there's two guitars playing on. You know, there's like a there's a higher register and a lower one, and so um, that's definitely a, a part to this song too. Is you know Jimmy overdubbing and, and doubling up. Um, getting very careful and clever, like again, like doing like reverse echoes and weird stuff that you just don't know how to explain if you don't know how it happened. Um, but yeah, like how that song, that crying banshee, the that wailing, it's yeah, it's two guitars playing the same things, different octaves right. or whatever, and it's and it, it it's just like a different. It's so impactful. It's got so much you know strength behind it. Um, it's a, it's a very interesting song, um, and I've been trying to learn how to play the bow part. I have I have a bow, um, so that's been interesting too. <laughs> it but is. Yeah, it's this is also like the first Zeppelin song that's on the lyrically. It's on the sexual side, which became the Zeppelin. Yeah. Because <laughs> I yep. saw I saw this meme the other day on the Reddit where it was like someone made a pie chart of like what Zeppelin songs are about. And it's like 98% of it was like sex. And then 2% was citrus fruit. Right. Yeah. It's, it's like sex and Lord of the Rings. And then, <laughs> then that little 2% is like for tangerine and the yeah. lemon song. <laughs> no, it's, it's uh no, it's a great song and you're right. The, the lyrics, pretty sexually charged you know the the soul of a woman was created below i mean and and their their lyrics that i think um more evolved minds such as ours could see as probably coming across as pretty misogynistic if we're being mm-hmm. honest um you know i don't know if the if this song had never been recorded until today i don't know that they could have gotten away with it if that makes mm-hmm. sense a little bit but yeah. it uh yeah it's it's a yeah, it, it set the table for a lot of ensuing Led Zeppelin stuff, right? I mean, yeah. Well, and and this this song, I don't know. Uh, and it, I mean, I love blues music. Oh, I do too. And I love rock, but I just feel like when it comes to this album and it comes to like them, like their personality, like that's why I feel like this is my favorite one on the album. Right. I mean, it's very unique too, uh, but it, I I just feel like it fits the expectation you know right pretty well it does it does got anything else on that one uh not that i can think of that's a good one um i was gonna do you know any covers of that song you know, I don't. Um, it's a random thought. And it's not the, at all. the one. Uh, so I will talk about this since since we're in the subject of covers. Um, I went to college at A and M, Texas A and M. For those of you not listening in Texas, and um, there used to be a little blues bar in Northgate, which is kind of the the bar district down there. Yeah. Um, there was a little kind of blues bar that also I think sold barbecue. It, it opened my senior year and I wasn't around much after that, but they used to have a guy who was kind of the house musician mm. and his kind of showpiece was at towards the end of every night, he would just take requests from the audience. Oh. And if he couldn't figure out how to play it, he would buy them drinks. 
Oh. And I, I mean, I remember people shouting out the most random. I mean, and it didn't matter. I mean, Willie Nelson, Steely Dan, whatever. Mm-hmm. They throw it out there, and and he would sit. And sometimes he took a minute to work it out. Yeah, I can. I have a specific memory of him doing "Reeling in the Years" by Steely Dan, and it was mm-hmm. a lot of before he got to. That's that's gonna sound great on the podcast, by the way. Sorry about that, everyone. But, you know, and I can remember someone throwing out Days to Confused, and that was the first time I had ever seen that guy be like, oh, okay, I got this. And he just, he, he clearly already knew how to play it. Yeah. And it was, uh, it was pretty neat. Of course, it didn't have the depth because it was, it was a little three-piece outfit. But, yeah. Um, but it was pretty cool, though. Hmm. And that's, so that's, that's the one cover I know I've heard of it huh. <laughs> besides what's on yeah. the Yardbird stuff. But yeah, that's not right. really technically a cover. Yeah, so. exactly. And that's the only thing I'm kind of aware of because I just tried to look looked it up again then really see any notable which kind of surprised to me yeah to me that's like because that song uh it's very like what you would almost consider like if someone came out with that song today you'd always be like that guy sounds like jack white right yeah <laughs> yeah and there's uh, and there's a lot to that i mean because you can hear in this song i think you can hear the influences on jack white oh and, yeah. and on uh um Dan Arbach from mm-hmm. from the Black Keys. Yeah. I think you can hear a lot of that. Well, in well this. I realized uh, very much so, like dissecting this album, like realizing, like, man, I did not realize because I, I like Jack White, but he, I, I'm not like I'm not all in on the guy. Like, I don't know every single little right. thing about him and where he came up with his sound. You know, I know where he's from. I know all the the outfits he's been with and 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 a lot of his work. I was like, but I respect the guy, but. I did not realize like how much he must have like really idolized like Paige, you know, oh, yeah. like, cause even like looking at his outfits, the attire that oh, he yeah. wore for the white stripes and stuff like that. It's like the jumpsuit shit that, that Paige would oh, wear. It's the hilarious. black and white stuff, the studded stuff, the, uh, and yeah. And looking at the styles, the, the, the crazy, uh, uh, uh methods of playing a guitar and the effects and stuff is it, very much in line of taking the, the cue from, from Zeppelin, you know, because I know there's also a lot of White Stripe and, and Jack Black, I mean, Jack White, Jack White stuff that is uh, like Beatles, you know, based, oh, yeah. you know, for yeah. sure. But I realize now that I think the majority of it comes from Zeppelin. Like I do, too. And I, I if you watch. Um, oh, my goodness. What was it? Was it called? It might get loud. No. Yeah, whatever. Oh, There's the, a the it, thing where it pays. Yeah, and, white and, and the edge. The edge. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'll I'll get on a YouTube soapbox a different day, but you know if you watch if you watch that, is it called? It might get loud. I think so. I, th- I think it is too. But now I'm losing confidence in that. But y- you can tell. I think if you watch it, you can see Jack White being just a little bit starstruck mm. uh, at first, yeah. and and it's it's pretty Wait, funny to me. Sometimes he just has that look on his well fan. yeah that's and that's <laughs> part of it is i i think another way that he's kind of emulating page is in this you know jack white has this kind of mysteriousness mm. about him and you know with jimmy page it was alistair crowley and mm. the occult and all that stupid but, crap but, no, but i mean but now i get it because like oh I, I do too because i i just never really made that connection but i yeah. could, i could still see them in the same way but not just not realize like oh you're drawing from that like that's like the the pale face long dark hair and the then the dark jumpsuit you know wailing yeah. on your guitar and doing your thing it's like oh i see mm-hmm. you yeah, like yeah. that guy like you know it's like oh the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the one thing i will say about you two right now and then I'll, I'll leave it alone okay. 
Because they had it, no right to give us that album. If you, well, besides that, <laughs> if you give yourself a nickname like The Edge, uh-huh. I don't know, man. I, I just, I can't, I, you know, it's like, I don't know. First off, I don't get people giving themselves their own nicknames. And secondly, if you're going to call yourself The Edge, do something that is so groundbreaking and so, you know, at the edge of whatever (laughs) that people will always remember you. But if you think about you, too, if you think about Zeppelin, you think about Jimmy Page. Mm -hmm. Like you might think of Plant first, but Jimmy Page is on equal footing, yeah. for sure. Yeah. If you think about you two, you know Bono. Mm-hmm. You could probably think of the Edge. Can't name the other two. I, I can't. I really can't. Yeah, I and can't I, I just, I don't know. I have always had this weird kind of grudge against about you two, oh, mainly, oh, mainly because of the Edge, and then Bono's kind of phony humanitarianism but yeah i mean (laughs) you know he's he claims to be concerned about the environment which is good i I mean i'm all for that i I believe in environmentalism i think it's important to be conscious of that but you know then there's a story where they were playing a gig in like berlin or something and bono forgot his favorite pair of shoes and had them flown in from ireland it's like come on man (laughs) anyway but that's that's all i'll say about youtube i don't mind the music I just I like everything I've learned about you two. The people has made me like them less. I haven't heard <laughs> one fact that I'm like, oh yeah, you know yeah, what? That makes my me appreciate that in the early 2000s they were like the biggest successful touring group. I know, of like of the time. It's insane. Like, that was, that's nuts. When I read that, I, this is the other day I read that and I was like, that's crazy. I would yeah. never guess that. Yeah. Anyways, that that Octung Baby album came out when I was in high school. Mm. And I never could get past on uh, the song Vertigo, how it starts, Uno, Dos, Tres, Catorce, which I believe would be 1, 2, 3, 14. Uh, yeah, yeah, it is 14. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, and so it's it's like, eh. uh, <laughs> I, I don't speak fluent Spanish, but I'm, I can count to 14 at least. And, <laughs> and I know Catorce is 14. <laughs> But uh, I'm also not a mathematician, but I know 14 doesn't come right after three. But uh, anyway, okay, off we'll, the soapbox. We'll ease up on uh, YouTube now. Moving back to yeah. the original. Yeah. Um, so the uh, the next track is Your Time is Gonna Come, which is the second, the beginning of the second half. Right. Uh, or side B. And, you know, there's not a whole lot to this one. Um, it is a Zep original, which is kind of nice. Um, I had a comment it, about that, though. Well, yeah. Um, but, I, you know, I like it. I think that the best thing that the song does is serve as the lead-in to Black Mountainside. But I do like the song. Mm. I, I like it a lot. Why do you, why do you say that, though? I, I don't know. I just, I like, I think how Black Mountainside starts with the fade out from Your Time Is Gonna Come. Mm-hmm. Is nice, but to me, what your time is going to come sounds like is it sounds like Led Zeppelin trying to write a hit. Mm, and, yeah, and it, 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 there's there's a little. It's almost like on on Led Zeppelin two, they have the live and love and made mm-hmm. that follows Heartbreaker, and that sounds like them trying to write a hit, mm-hmm. and that's that's just not. Well, it, that's also. Um, I love to think about because in modern times people don't consider like the lineup of an album, but right. if you consider it in a physical medium, it was it's a different experience. So 
you you know, like side A is more positive and side B is the heavier or slower stuff. You know, there's a lot of expectation that people right. build up for that type of um, um, planning. But um, like when you think of uh, Sergeant Pepper, they specifically put within you, without you as the first track on side B. So it'd be easier to skip if people didn't like it. Right. Because um, they thought it was cool, but they knew with the sitar and, and the, the more... Uh, just a lack of awareness of that kind of music right. in the culture at the time. There is like, ah, people probably going to want to skip that. So let's put it at the beginning, but you had to consider that. So I feel like with this album, that might've been the idea is this is a little more commercial. Cause it does the, um, what did I write down? It's got that more classic sixties rock, like uh, a choir or, or yeah, like that, that, that uh, multi vocal chorus where right. everyone's singing together. And like, I can't think of, you know, like it's, it's the, it's the time of the season or no, what's this? I'm trying to think of like a 60s song, that, but then there's a bunch of them like that, where the chorus is sung by a, like a group, you know, and, and that's like, that adds to the, the, the impact of this of the song but yeah i agree with you this one because it is it is a great song it, it is it sounds like an early yardbird song it yeah. sounds like a clapton yardbird song to me yeah yeah it does um it now um this was the comment i was going to make though about you saying it, it's original yeah, um, with quotes <laughs> is you know what it's so the um well, I guess it's the guitar. The yeah, dear, dear Mr. Fantasy. Fantasy. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly what I was going to. Because uh, as soon as I heard this song, because I was driving, I was driving and listening to this song. I, I, I know yeah. I've heard the song before, but again, it was fleeting. It was kind of like in the background. But this was my first, you know, real serious listen. And uh, I, I heard it in the house, and then I was driving, and then it started to play, and then that that part came in, and I was like, wait a second. Yeah, that's traffic. Yeah, like, yes. and so and so I, I looked up the release date, um, and I and I was kicking myself because I was like at work and doing all these multiple things at random times. I'd be like, oh, I gotta look it up. When did traffic release your Mr. Fantasy? Was it '69 or '68? I can't remember. And it was prior. Right, it was before. And what's really interesting is, I, I want to look more into it. I should have, um, but I wonder if you know Paige or or Jones if they were big fans of theirs or really liked that album because even if they just heard the single dear mr fantasy that that song also uh, houses a lot of what would be known as a kind of a zeppelin sound because it has um uh dear mr fantasy it has harmonica right oh yeah it's got it's got that uh, uh distorted vocal you know yeah um and uh you know, and a guitar solo and organ and all that kind of stuff like that. But it's just, it's very interesting. I, I, for whatever reason, I thought that those songs maybe released almost in tandem, but it was a exact, like an exact year prior that Traffic had released that song. Right. And, and I was, I just looked it up to make sure that I, I was going to get this right. Steve Winwood did help write Dear Mr. Fantasy. And Steve Winwood is another one of those guys who kind of got lumped in with that. Jeff Beck, Jimmy Page crowd of guitarists back then, um, you know, obviously different circles and stuff, but guys who were about the same age, who played very oh, similar styles. Yeah. Well, and they're also bopping around, jumping to different groups oh, sure. and, and just collaborating. And like we said, these weren't, uh, they were established, but they weren't 
self businesses. Right. So it's like when I give you something or if we work on something together and then we leave the house and then go to different bands and then finish the same project. Right. Knowing it's like, then it's just by word. It's just by honor, you know? <laughs> um, but it, that, yeah, I, I just, it, are you aware of any kind of like legal thing about that one? No, or anything? I, I looked for it because I thought the same thing you did. Yeah. Like I, it, it, cause I, that was the first time I, I listened to this album all the way through uh, for the first time in a couple of years, probably about a week ago, I've heard all the songs individually, but listening to it all the way through, like you were saying, it just, there's yeah. something different about it. Mm -hmm. And it was the same thing. Like I, I thought that I had accidentally skipped to a traffic album <laughs> on my iTunes for a second. And then I was like, Oh no, 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 I forgot. It just kind of sounds like this. Yeah. And I, I looked, I couldn't find anything. And I don't know if it was just kind of a, you know, like some, some form of honor among the musicians or, you know, I mean, for all I know, Jimmy Page and Steve Winwood, you know, got loaded one night and started playing it and they were both like, Hey, this kind of sounds good. And they were like, oh, okay, well you use it. I'll use it. And we just never speak of it again. Yeah. Or um, is it some kind of like old school, like blue standard oh, it could or be. something? Yeah. That, Cause you know, like, uh, was it wasn't it stairway of uh, stairway to heaven that there is a certain part of it they couldn't sue for because it's technically like some kind of scale or standard that's yeah. not yeah like, you it's, didn't write that you just played how the progression goes or whatever yeah it's it's that very beginning that ding ding right ding, ding, ding. another thing it'll sound great on the show um, but yeah I mean because all you're doing is it's it's almost a pentatonic scale of right. whatever chord that is that's yeah. being played so I wonder if that's similar but anyways yeah i just my ears immediately perked up yeah. i love dear mr fantasy that is a phenomenal song i do too and i am uh you know since we are talking about led zeppelin i did the logical thing and wore my tie-dye grateful dead shirt to, to do the recording <laughs> but um jerry garcia and and the dead as a whole covered dear mr yeah. fantasy a lot and, yeah. and did it a good service and so uh that's a but, great track yeah i agree i agree but that's crazy. Yeah, I, I just for whatever reason, you know, I thought and I know Winwood was with a lot of people, but he, oh yeah, but Winwood, especially at that time, sixty eight. I mean, he he was well, sixty eight, sixty nine. He had gone through a couple of groups, and he he was jamming with a lot of people. Right. I, I mean, a lot of people, even Hendrix. I mean, on yeah. the, on a uh, highway ch uh, child, he, yeah. he's the organist on that. Yeah. Um, um, for Voodoo Child, he 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 was jamming with them when they came up with that. Really? Yeah, so, yeah, and I didn't know. And that's pretty cool. Yeah, and and it's just because um, Mitch Mitchell liked to jam. Um, the bassist, I'm forgetting his name in the experience. Yeah, um, he didn't. He yeah. he was more traditional session musician, where it's like, let's come in, let's write something. You tell me what to play. And we'll work it out. He didn't like to just go in and let's just let's just play, you know, let's just mess around. That's not that he just wasn't about that in, as a musician. Right. And so that's why people like Winwood would come into the mix with them sometime with the experience is because they just wanted to jam and, and flush things out. Um, which yeah. some of those jams eventually that that's what ended up on. Um, what's the album that came out um, post uh, post. Uh, his death um whatever that album that comes out in 71 or whatever freedom yeah. or yeah um, i think it was called freedom one uh, yeah like a lot of that is just jams that they didn't he didn't finish but they were just coming up with but anyways yeah like winwood was in that mix but that makes total sense i mean if he's with an experimental rock blues rock person like hendrix i mean i'm sure he's in those crowds with beck and and uh uh page and right and uh, yeah who knows what 
cross pollination happens yeah. with that. But yeah, anyways, Noel, Noel Redding, by the way, was the bassist that was going to bug oh, okay. me. Yeah. And I could I could remember <laughs> Noel, but I couldn't remember Redding, and mm. Noel doesn't narrow it down enough. So Noel Redding, <laughs> bassist gotcha. for the Jimi Hendrix experience. But yeah, um, yeah, just very interesting. I don't know. So if you like Dear Mr. Fantasy, I can <laughs> yeah. guarantee you'll love this song. Yeah. And it does, it, it does have a fade out and the yeah. fade out begins the next song, uh, Black Mountainside. Another one that uh, had a little bit of litigation surrounding it. Yeah, because this was a folk song. It was by a Scottish folk artist named Bert Janch. And I did look that up because I thought it would be pronounced differently, but apparently he pronounced it with a hard J, Janch. Hmm. Apparently the more common way is Yanch. Oh, okay. Uh, and it's, it's a different name though, right? Isn't it? Yeah, it's called Down by Blackwaterside. Yeah. Uh, Blackwaterside all being one word, which is kind of interesting. Hmm. Very Germanic. Um, and the only the only thing I really have on this one is that is that that the only reason why uh, Paige had this in his head was because the Yardbirds would play that right that song right and uh, Bert Janch wrote lyrics for it and this this is one that there was no actual lawsuit filed but there was some sort of discussion mm. and I believe I, I'm kicking myself because I apparently I didn't write it down but. Um, I believe that it's another one of those things that on reissues in the 90s, it mm-hmm. started saying, you know, uh, Jimmy Page as arranged by Burt Janch or whatever. Yeah. So, but, um, hmm. but yeah, he was a Scottish folk artist and I guess was the, I guess Scotland only had enough for one folk artist because I had never heard of him. The only Scottish <laughs> folk artist I can name is Donovan. So hmm. I guess, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess that town ain't big enough for the both of them. <laughs> But yeah. it is, it's a good song. I mean, it's, it's short, it's instrumental. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, it's, it's Jimmy Page showing off a little bit, which is always nice. Um, yeah. So it's, uh, but it's a good track. I mean, it's, it's kind of, I mean, it fills the gap uh, between your time is going to come and communication breakdown um, beautifully. And it, 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 the one weird part about uh, Black Mountainside to me is the way it ends because it just stops. stops. There's, mm-hmm. there's no kind of winding down. It's just, you know, there's a note and then there's silence. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like it's like, again, the concept of the second side. Right. It's like, we're going to, it's going to be a little more easy, a little somber. We're going to build it up. We're going to have a, a multi-vocal, you know, arrangement or singing the first song and it's more poppy. Maybe it's a little more like, you know, not, not like angsty it's not high energy it's just smooth and we're singing together and then you go into a, a a quick instrumental so it's like you know it's flowing and then they're like but let me remind you what else we can do <laughs> and then hit you hard with the communication breakdown yeah and uh I, you know Led Zeppelin gets a lot of what, you, you know, you, we were talking about this before the show. They get a lot of kind of misplaced credit for inventing heavy metal. Mm-hmm. Um, but they might have accidentally invented punk rock with communication <laughs> breakdown. And, and mm. you know, it was it's uh, if we're moving on or are, are we moving yeah. on? Yeah, because I, I don't I don't know how much more I can talk yeah. about Black Mountainside. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But, you know, communication breakdown, a lot of downstrokes, what we would now call power chords mm-hmm. in a lot of it. And um, Johnny Ramone or one of the Ramones has even said that communication breakdown is what inspired kind of that whole Ramones 
sound. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and it's not hard to hear. You listen to communication breakdown and then you listen to, I want to be sedated or rock and roll high school or any of the other Ramon songs. And, you know, the Ramones are kind of considered fathers of punk in some way than the Stooges to some extent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's definitely got that proto punk, uh, it does. And, and, and guitar that, that fast guitar that, uh, what would you call it? Like that, that, um, not head banging, but the robotic that yeah the power yeah. chords. That's what you nah, 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 nah. right. It's uh, a, it sounds like an early Sex pistol song to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and because the other because in let me see, this is early '69. Because I'm trying to think of like what else you would think of like that. What would be proto punk? Um, and it would also be like late '69, which would be Bowie's uh, first album, right. "The Man Who Sold the World," which, right. which is primarily Ronson giving that proto punk vibe off just because of that his style which was just that palpable high energy just like right. that because i call it like that primal ground you know it's just like it man is. whatever he's playing it's just what is that you know but, right but it was so fast yeah playing the power chords going crazy fast um but yeah because this is that that development of that of that uh high high tempo hard-hitting sound that that would be considered uh, punk and then you and then like i guess it would have been about the same year or the year after you have people like mc5 popping right. up and stuff like that really honing in on certain parts of that sound because i mean that's how you develop a genre is like you know one genre does something a little bit different and then someone hears that and they like what's different about it and they just cut out the rest and like i right. like that you know? yeah no you're exactly right and uh and i agree and even even on that bowie album the title track man who sold the world mm. you know that riff in that and I'm not going to do it because I've already blown everyone's ears out twice now. But it's if it sounds like a slowed down punk progression mm. is what it is. And it, it's not a slow song by any chance, by any means. But, you know, punk is normally really fast. But yeah. that riff in The Man Who Sold the World. Well, yeah. And that whole album. And it, the whole album is like it, that. It, 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 but it's like the beginnings of that. It, right. It, it's like you, you can you can pick up on it, but man, by the time you get to hunky dory, like listening to like queen bitch and, oh, yeah. and, and especially by the time you're on Ziggy, I mean that that's what the, and they became the spiders from Mars. I mean, that group of musicians, they, they were just, they didn't even realize it because the hunky dory, they actually, he, they composed a lot of that using the piano first. Right. And so half the album is slower and the other half is like this proto punk thing. And it's like, where are we going here? Cause the first album, man who sold the world, it's like, a lot of it's rock, proto-punk, intense high rock, which I think comes from Zeppelin maybe shaking the dust off of people in the beginning of the year. And you have like a young Ronson and a Bowie. It's like when the turn heads and do something a little bit different. So like, let's hit it harder. Let's do something crazy. And then they come to the next album and they're like, well, let's mix it up. Let's do the traditional stuff using piano and we'll do some of that high energy stuff. And then by the time you get to Ziggy, it's like, it's just all high energy. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, but yeah, it's definitely that the beginning of that of the and, uh, commercial acceptance of that too. Of like, if you bust in with that high energy, crazy sound, it's like as long as it's marketed or it gets played or in your touring, it's like you're gonna you'll develop something. Oh yeah, and I'll I'll, I'll try and blow your mind. I don't know if it's going to, but you know, rock early rock and roll songs and early rock and roll singers were piano based. Right. Mm-hmm. Fats Domino, Chubby Checker, Little Richard. Yeah. Those guys wrote songs on pianos, but they sounded like punk songs. If you think about a Fats Domino song where it's a lot of very heavy handed, fast chords, 
that sounds like punk. Mm. The problem is then you get into the 60s and people start writing songs on guitars mm. and having more folk, folk. Yeah. influence and that kind of stuff. And then you get back to punk and a lot of punk and, and even communication breakdown, if we're going to include that kind of as a punk song, it sounds like you're playing those heavy handed, fast 50s rock and roll piano riffs, yeah. but on a guitar. Yeah. Well, it's like we were talking about before. You translate it to different instruments. Right. You might just go into another genre on accident. Right. Yeah. And that's, I mean, you know, it's, it's weird to think that like Chubby Checker and Fats Domino might really be the more immediate precursors <laughs> to the Sex Pistols and the Clash and the Ramones and yeah. people like that. But I, and you know, well, you've said it. I don't. I don't need to repeat it. But it's it's just that's what music is. That's what music evolution is. Yeah. And, and it's like you said, it's how those new genres are born. Yeah, yeah, and that's why none of it's like pinpointable. None of it's like, oh, and this is the origins of that. Right. Un- unless like you, you, the first person that used an instrument like ever. Yeah. You know, it's yeah, like it's just someone writes a song on a theremin or something. You're yeah. like, oh, okay, I can kind of see that. Yeah, but like. The do- only documented first use of like synthesizer, you know, <laughs> right? Stupid brand things, but yeah, no, for sure. But, um, yeah, this song is just so it, it's so high energy, and I know this is like one of the ones they love to do live too, and it would just go nuts. I mean, you know, the guitar solos would run long, they would tag team it, you know, you do your solo, I'll do my part. Um, but it's uh. Oh, and, and this is this is one of the songs that I, you can you can hear the bass so clear. Oh yeah, and that bass line is so solid. Like it's it's and like what you said. I, I think that that really it probably is a part of the composition of it. Is Paige knew that this is this isn't this isn't just another bass guy right. who's casual. It's like if he's doing it, so like, and they probably you know understand what he's playing uh, or can expect what he's going to play, but he's going to do it well. He's going to execute it. Uh, with power and it's not he's going to project it's not just going to be a, a passive thing in the background and so like with this song i mean you can hear it the i mean it's it's great um yeah i, I just wanted to make sure to point that out because it, it's definitely one of the the tracks that that he really you can hear him really well and he's great foundation for a bass um and this song is more of that um it's more of that i don't know that um cocky rock it's more like you know proud rock kind yeah there, of sound. there's there's a swagger to it yeah it, it's got that what the rolling stones you know yeah. kind of project it, it, this song to me is almost like a high energy like the height of their energy rolling stones but with a drummer like mitch mitchell right you know what i mean it's yeah like, you combine that this is that song for right sure and, and again nothing against charlie waters great jazz drummer and a great rolling stones member from the early days mm-hmm. i believe um but Good as Charlie Waters was, he's not John Bonham and he's not Mitch Mitchell. Um, yeah, yeah. This was Communication Breakdown was the B-side of the single. It was the flip side of yeah. uh, Good Times, Bad Times. And something I kind of thought interesting, I, I'd never really thought about it, although it makes sense. So this was played in the main set of every single documented concert that Led Zeppelin did. Mm. Uh, between the release of the album in 1970. Hmm. And then in 1970, it switched and became an encore piece and was the on, was an encore piece for almost every single Zeppelin concert from wow. 1970 until until 
Bonham died. Mm. And so it's pretty interesting. And, and they would, um, you know, they would throw stuff in the middle or like in the BBC sessions, you know, they recorded three separate versions and each one is just a little tweaked. Mm. Um, but I think this was a song that the four of them enjoyed playing. And uh, I think it gave them gave each member a chance to shine a little bit yeah, in, well, in a way that was, that was, that flowed well. Yeah. Well, it's just like, uh, and I think it's composed that way. Like just like Queen developed songs that would be good for concert members right. to sing along to and interact with each other. I feel like this was, this is how when we play, we're, we're, we'll hand the spotlight off. You know, yeah. this is, this is where we're going to shine, you know, because I mean this to me, this song is where they, at least in the beginnings, this is where they get thrown into the Black Sabbath, into the I, heavy, yeah, I heavy metal side. Because, I mean, Paige is face melting. I mean, it's just, uh, it's madness. I mean, the, the, the speed and the the variety. I mean, he, he he's just killer. And so, especially first album, you're still in the 60s. I mean, I could definitely see how people would hear how, how he's playing a guitar and just being like, like, yeah, why is that? Like that? That's that. That's like rock times two. And I don't know if I like that. You know, yeah. <laughs> like certain yeah. people, I'm sure, were just like, that's because because I mean, and and this is different different ways of appreciating music. But I'm sure there were some people that just couldn't keep up. So there was like, I don't know how to appreciate that. Like, what is that? I don't like that. I can't expect that. Like, that's not that's not rock to me. That's not music to me. Yeah, you know. But and that's why I could definitely see how like people that. Are on the lighter side of music, they would perceive that as being like that's heavy metal, that's like otherworldly, demonic, or whatever, just because it was so like crazy. I mean, yeah. it's madness. It, it brought out the get off my lawn in a lot of people. I think <laughs> I think it brought that out you in a lot kids. of people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, but I mean, that's what it is, though. I mean, it's oh, like, I agree. It's like if you if you want to kind of think of the epitome of like of rock evolving to the point of being like annoying to a previous generation. <laughs> yeah. It's like, this is one of the ones that would have been like, if you thought Beatles like revolution was like, Oh, oh yeah. So hard. I don't like that. Or helter skelter. <laughs> Check yeah. <this> out. <laughs> if, you, if you think about some guy who'd been an infantry infantryman on Normandy or whatever, and you know, their idea of kicking back is listening to Glenn Miller a little bit louder than normal. And then they hear this, Yeah, you know, it just, it, after you hear, you know, Chattanooga choo choo enough times, and then you hear communication breakdown, it's, yeah. it's gonna, you're going to blow a circuit. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's all it is. Or to the people that found, you know, uh, I want to hold your hand offensive because, <laughs> Because it was electric or because it was electric using folk chords, you know, if you're that uh, particular, it's like, what is this to you? Like, yeah. Lord, I can imagine why this is so disrupting. Yeah. And so like, I don't know, off-putting to certain people, but also attractive to others because it was like, how are you getting that sound? How are yeah. you that fast? How are you, you know? Yeah. But I think that's, that kind of becomes what this, this band um, started to do is just like the Beatles mastered music and kind of show, cause I, I heard a lot of musicians describe the way the Beatles did music as almost showing people how to make music. Yeah. Um, and how to appreciate it and how to appreciate different types of music by, you know, just doing it in, in simple ways, but new ways. Yeah. For, Ze- formulaic, but not unoriginal. Right. But with Zeppelin, it was like, okay, uh, so we know what that is, but what's next? Like what, what's going to be just like, if you want to understand it, you have to put in some work, you know, what's the next level of complexity? You know, that, that's what they, they are to me. And it, it's very interesting that in a lot of interviews too, that people, 
And it's and obviously in the UK, they projected that onto them. It's like, okay, the Beatles are gone. So are you, you have that next generation sound? Are you the next, you know, Beatle group? Are you the next group that leads the charge of what's, you know, what's to come or whatever? Um, and it was interesting because you could tell that they were asked that multiple times. Oh, Every yeah. time they were asked that, they're like, they didn't know what to do with that. And <laughs> yeah. like, uh, we'll see. I don't, I don't, you know. <laughs> but to their credit, they did last longer. Oh yeah, yeah, they did. <laughs> but um, but yeah. Anyways, that's that, that song though. Um, communication breakdown. I, I just feel like that's the centerpiece in the beginning of why people were like putting them in the same field as Sabbath and folks like that. But whatever that's all i got on that one yeah it's uh moving on track eight the penultimate song uh i can't quit you baby another willie dixon number that uh again was actually properly credited to willie dixon so uh jimmy page apparently knew that you were supposed to do that if you stole stuff (laughs) but uh this is this is another one of those that's just it's very typical of kind of the blues foundational stuff in the late 60s for sure i love this song i I love every version of it i've ever heard that they did this was another one that was a uh, a live staple standalone and then kind of became a part of the whole lot of love medley as they Mm. as they progressed and so in the um especially in the mid 70s uh-huh. when they would make whole lot of love a you know 17 or 18 minute thing <laughs> um not a moaning yeah right you have a 45 minute version of moby dick followed by a 20 minute version of i can't quit you baby with a bunch of weird moaning in it uh-huh. um 30 minutes of plant just moaning yeah. <laughs> it's, it's amazing that guy can talk anymore with with how <laughs> abusive he was to his vocal cords right well, it's funny when they talk about the uh the um, O2 Arena reunion thing that they did in the early 2000s, yeah. about how scared they were about coming together and, you know, meeting the expectation of everybody. And like, they're like, oh, are you going to tour again when you start there? And like, clamping, like, I don't know if I can be the the howling sex god, the Viking god. You know, yeah. Like every night. <laughs> I, I saw, I saw Robert Plant and Alison Krauss in Austin one time and he, his stage presence is this it's similar it's almost the same it's, it's still a lot of like hand gestures and theatrical. weird kind of movement theatrical uh-huh. yeah but you know everything's an octave lower mm, everything oh, yeah. is slower he doesn't scream anymore. and they you know with Allison Krauss they're playing bluegrass versions of Black Dog and that mm, kind of stuff right, yeah but you know instead of you know really hitting those high <sighs> yeah. notes it's, yeah oh yeah, yeah. You, you, you can only go so long <laughs> right even even in Black Dog even the, the hey baby parts it's you know with Allison Krauss it's Hey, baby, pretty baby. You know, it's, yeah. it's oh, just. Yeah. Well, and I mean, at that time, I mean, you, you're wearing your voice out, but it's also it's expected that you're smoking like. All oh, the yeah. Time. Yeah. <laughs> Which I can only imagine that's. I know. Right. Yeah. I <laughs> three packs a day of unfiltered luckies can't can't yeah. be good for you. Well, that's the I'm no blo- doctor. But. Well, that's the mind blowing thing when you look at the. Uh, like let it be or get back session like stuff when you have Paul doing some of his best vocals but then you have them you show them in the studio and they're like you know they're the producers they're on the tables they're on the the mixers and they're doing their thing but then while they're writing in between everything they're doing they got a cigarette in their mouth and they're like hey give me those you know just like constantly and it's like dang well I mean that was just the thing yeah I I have heard I don't know if this is true so Mm -hmm. I, I mean 
please no one take this as gold. But I had heard that Motley Crue, just speaking of craziness Mm -hmm. on tours, Uh that when they would tour, uh, when they had a U.S. tour, they would bring 5,000 cartons of cigarettes. And a carton is 10 boxes and each box has 20 cigarettes in it. (laughs) Good Lord. So it's. 5,000 times 200, oh and that's that's a lot of cigarettes. <laughs> Isn't that a million? Uh, is it? Yeah, probably. I don't know. <laughs> I don't I did the quick math, but that's a lot. I don't do math. That's a lot. That's a, that's <laughs> an a English lot. history guy, mm-hmm. not a math yeah. science guy. I'm just a talk show host. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, that's that's nuts. But it's such a crazy habit, you know, of, yeah. the, of the era, of the time. Yeah. But anyways, yeah, I mean, I can imagine. I mean, Paul's done the same thing. There's certain – he has he has access now to play, play anything from the Beatles catalog, anything from Wings, but he stays away, you know, from certain ones because he just knows he can't do it. Yeah. Just You just got to adapt, you know. Makes sense. Yeah. I, I'm nothing against him. But, um, but anyways, yeah, but I just find it interesting that, like – yeah, at the time, I mean, they were expected to pump it out, have all those habits, and just keep on trucking. You yeah, know, I know it was an age of excess where they're just making money left and right, and just doing whatever. It's gonna take a toll eventually. But yeah. Anyways, um, it's a great song. Um, uh, but yeah, anyways, and we're on. Um, I can't quit you, babe. That this song, I, I really like this one because uh, it's that that classic blues, like slow ballad type type of deal, but it's got a it's got those fills at like the oh, ends yeah. that are that are Zeppelin. So it's like it's blues and it feels kind of traditional, you know. Okay, and then whenever they would do those little fills at the end of the measures, it's like that Zeppelin. The, yeah, the, 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 you know, oh, and yeah. they would go back into it. And but yeah, that's just great. That, that's them adding their that Zepp spice to it. Oh yeah, and and Bonham, you know, it became such a staple. I, anyone who is even halfway a rock and roll connoisseur of anything, you can always pick out. Bonham's drums. I mean, mm. it's it's just it's such a signature sound, and and you know there are other drummers like that. Uh, you, you know you can p- pick out Neil Peart. You can pick out Keith Moon sometimes um, when he wasn't uh, too messed up to play. But you know Bonham. This is you're right. This is a very a lot of those fills are very. Uh, they're they're what would become Bonham staples, and you would hear them in their inversions in other songs, and and that is adding that Zeppelin flair to a Willie Dixon song. Yeah, awesome. Uh, you want to start? Yeah. So leading in, this is the very last song on the album, track nine, uh, or the fifth track of side two, if you want to get into it that way. It is how many more times? Uh, it's the longest song on the album and it's, uh, it's a little over like eight minutes. Yeah. It's, it's just over eight minutes. This is, uh, this is kind of an interesting one as far as writing credits go, uh, because it was credited to Zeppelin, but it's pretty much accepted that it's kind of an amalgamation of ripoffs. Um, Oh really? Yeah. So a lot of, some of the riffs came from Albert King, um, and some of it came from Jeff Beck. There's a little bit of Bex oh. Bolero in there, oh, which, yes, which, yes. which okay. Jimmy Page did right, right. but Jeff Beck made his own. Yes, yeah. It's like Jimmy Page helped wrote it 
the year prior gave it to Beck and helped him play it. Right. And then a year later, he's like, ah, I want to throw that in the middle of mine. Right. <laughs> and then, uh, but the, the, and it's the Bolero. Right. The biggest ripoff in this song, though, is actually the lyrical content. Um, a lot of this came from various Howlin' Wolf songs, and uh, Howlin' Wolf was eventually credited on the album and re-releases. Mm. But it is, it's kind of interesting because... Um, you know, I think that Robert Plant, who was credited as the lyricist originally, I think Robert Plant kind of had this idea that if you throw enough kind of blues tropes into the lyrics that, you know, because a lot of blues songs have very similar lyrical content, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. And I think Plant's thinking was, well, if I steal from someone who stole from someone who stole from someone. Just wash it out. Right. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's, I, I agree with the spirit of that. Um, <laughs> I disagree with the, the, the ultimate result. I mean, you Calling know, it original. right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, you can, you can steal all you want. Just don't, don't call it your own, I guess yeah. when it comes to that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Uh, and this is also another song that features a bowed guitar, uh, which mm. is kind of interesting. It's, uh, you know, Dazed and Confused gets all the all the credit for that. But, yeah, how many more times has has yeah. a bow in it? <laughs> yeah, and I, I like this one because it's the uh, – I guess some of it also has some jazz uh, influence, but this one is, like, the most obvious. I mean, right, right. right from the get, you have that jazz bass line and the – the, oh yeah, the part, yeah, the the, the um, yeah. bottom drum line, but the uh, I, I just love it because it's got that I don't know, and with that weird guitar. I mean, it it it's 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 a good approach to another one of their foundations, the jazz foundation, while adding in the the weird um, guitar ad libs and stylings that would you know really make it sound like them. But it's also just a long piece, so it goes through so many different right. uh, uh, forms and changes um, that it does play out. Like we were talking about earlier, it does play out more like a jazz song because right. it's it's long. It's got a lot of different changes, a lot of different arrangements. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's why I like I like this one um, for the ending. Um, I do too. I think it's a great track to end on. Um, I agree with you. It's it's got that powerful kind of jazz uh, beat on the, up on the ride. Mm -hmm. You know, normally you would expect a very uh, heavy handed hi hat in a song like this, but instead it's kind of lighter and it's played up on the ride for a lot of it. Yeah. Um, What's interesting about this song is, and this is my favorite song on the album, so oh, okay. we've, we've gotten to that. Um, it's my favorite song on the album. I, I just love it. What's interesting, though, as far as its concert history, is I was reading about it. So, again, this this was a staple until about 1970. So, mm -hmm. it, you know, basically for Led Zeppelin 1 and Led Zeppelin 2, those albums were played in their, I mean, almost in their entirety. Sure. You only have some concert pieces, yeah. right? Um, then Led Zeppelin 3 came out in 1970 or 1971 and was more acoustic based. And then, of course, you have four coming out. And four's got Stairway going to California, Four Sticks, Battle of Evermore, Black Dog. It's got, you know, what would yeah. become Their most of it. Right. Yeah. And uh, this song really kind of fell out after Led Zeppelin three came out. And it was played very, very, very sporadically after mm -hmm. that and was never really a regular part of the show. Well, and that's that's kind of the and I think that's where that I don't want to say false perception of where, where they come from or what their foundations are. But kind of like 
Because they get away, they start to turn it to the more commercial, successful stuff, right? Which is that Zeppelin Four immigrant song, this that high energy rock stuff. But then you're missing out on this and the you shook me and the uh, which is it, it is slower, it's a little bit different, but it's 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 still them. It's still them. Yeah, um, but it's very very different, and so I I feel like that's. Again, maybe they lose it. They they lose that um, uh, reference point of wanting to build off of their foundations, and now they're just building off of what they've become, you know, and just chugging along with that momentum. But that's that's why I like this song. And, oh yeah, and um, I can't quit you, babe, and uh, uh, and you shook me is because it's still that great core blues jazz sound, which. I, mean, I love that. Oh, you I do too. You can't, you can't ever, you know, it's hard to make that sound bad unless you're just bad at what you're doing. Right, exactly. <laughs> but, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, that's gotta be it that they, you know, they just saw what was evolving from the audience point of view. And I don't know, maybe just gave into that, but I, but you can see that that's their, you know, that's where the respect comes from. That's where the inspiration comes from. Yeah. And I, I think I, I think you hit the nail on the head with the blues. Like it's it's hard to I I, I wish I could give credit because I don't know who said this. I, it wasn't me. I'll, I'll do that. I'll give that disclaimer. <laughs> but someone once said that to make the blues, you need soul and you need skill and you can make up for a lack of skill with more soul. But you can never make up for a lack of soul with more skill. Hmm. And I, I think that this, I think that this album with those blues heavy tracks, "You Shook Me," "I Can't Quit You," mm. how many more times? I think that Zeppelin was one of those, and a lot of it has to do with Plant's energy as a as a singer. Mm. Um, a lot of the Zeppelin songs had that kind of soul and passion yeah. that is what makes the blues such an easy genre of music to listen to and an enjoyable genre of music to listen yeah. to. Well, it's that palpable like energy. It is. And you know, the blues was, it was brought up in poor African-American communities in the United States where people did not always have access to the best instruments and the best training. So it's supposed to be somewhat simplistic and serve wow. as building blocks yeah. of things. And if you look, you know, American music for whatever that is really, I mean, you know, they said that jazz was the true American art form, right? Mm. And jazz was, it was spawned from kind of blues and bluegrass. And then they all kind of went their separate ways with their similarities and their differences. But the blues has served as such a building block uh, for all rock and roll, yeah, as we oh, know it. I mean, yeah, I, you oh, know, absolutely. going back to the origins with Little Richard and then you get with Elvis where you're kind of bringing rock and roll to a more mainstream audience. Which is also in uh, uh, Elvis. Elvis's it, yeah. existence was literally a, a translation from a black artist to a white musician yeah. to get more commercial success. That's yeah. literally why Elvis was put where he was. Yeah. Which isn't crazy. That's what, that's who Otis Blackwell was. But he wrote like all of Elvis's, all of Elvis's early hits that got him. Oh yeah. Fame, that was him. Yeah. That's crazy. Or to quote, um, you know, music icon Eminem, he did say, you know, um, 
I am the worst thing since Elvis Presley to do black music so selfishly. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to do it in rhythm because I don't want to embarrass myself too much. But I <laughs> think your that, hats on back. Yeah, I know. Right like I already feel like I look like Fred Durst. <laughs> that, that's bad enough for me. But um, <laughs> oh man, it's, my wife's never going to find me attractive again. Um, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I think that that's what it is. And then that's why the blues serves as such a great uh, foundational block of yeah. that kind of stuff is, yeah. is you have stuff that is simple and passionate that can be built upon so easily. Yeah. And that and you can't you can't learn or you can't train you know, that soul oh, yeah. approach to yeah. singing or 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 wanting to um, exude something or or. Uh, get across a feeling, you know, it's like, it's like a good speaker. And it's like, sometimes when you're a really good speaker, you don't need to write it all down. You don't need to have it all fleshed out. You just have the general idea of what's going on and your personality and character dynamics fill in the gap. Yep. And that's why you can't teach it is because it's just something that I've admired, observed, built on practice in my own time. And then now is the presentable moment to do it, to belt, to experiment, to screech how, you know, be a Janis Joplin, be a, you know, be someone that's going to the, the take an approach that's going to relate to someone, you know. Right. So, I mean, that that is music, you know, music is you composing something that you feel to, you know, communicate to someone else, to yeah. communicate that feeling to someone else. And, and that's why blues is such a. So you have a lot of committed fans of blues. Right. Because it's a very you feel it. It's not just a that's great timing that's that's a great little you know song it's like most blues songs like when you hear it you don't just hear it you feel it right and 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 it's because it's relatable it's because um and it's got and because of the the structure of the songs you know the notes you're playing a lot of times it's that it's going to put you in that mood of self-reflection of of um there's an inherent vulnerability to it. Yeah. And it's, it, I think when, um, you know, not to, not to get too Dr. Phil on people here, but I think when you can hear other people being vulnerable, mm-hmm. um, in such a passionate and enjoyable way, it can bring that out in yourself where you, yeah. you kind you do get that introspective yeah. kind of feeling. And I'm, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you listen to one bourbon, one scotch and one beer, and suddenly you're crying your eyes out and talking about stuff, but you know, but it's there, you, you hear it, you can hear the passion, you can feel the passion and that's yeah. the more important thing. And, and it just, it's, it is why music is a billion and billion and billion and billion dollar industry yeah. is because people love having some sort of external um, influence on their internal self. Yeah. And, and I having finding something that can make you think harder about anything. I think is worth getting into. I mean, it, you know, yeah. it's, the, it, it leaves an impression. It exactly. has some kind of power behind it. And, and, and it, as everybody says, knowledge is power, but if you want to have your own power, it's good to have your own knowledge and your own, you know, structure. Right. And so it's like, I, I, I can appreciate it. This is one thing I t- talk about a lot is anybody can judge anything. You, you might not have ever t- tasted a peanut butter jelly sandwich, but you could judge one. Right. Yeah. So anyone could do it without sensation, without experience sensation and and to become a maker or a creator um, or an or an appreciator of an art form. Um, I mean, you have to know more about it. And, and I think that's the the warm 
um, or, or the really relatable approach of, of, of a genre like blues is you're already halfway there. You, you know, they're, they're talking about topics or they're playing in a style that already puts you in that mood that you've been in before that we've all been in before. Cause I, I think that's, you know, like a lot of pop music, it's, it's popular, it's high energy and stuff like that. But then there's other music that, that people are drawn to because it's relatable to, you know, I know there's, there's stuff like memory, um, chunking and memory development of like, I remember listening to this album in college when things were so hard, blah, blah, but there's also just hearing that song and the message or the story that's been, you know, put in front of you and, and being able to relate to it just because you're human. Yeah. Just because it's something that we all go through and it's cause it's a dark time that we've all been through or, or, or someone that like in blues is so traditional or it's like someone did you wrong, a relationship that was, you know, toxic, whatever it could be. But that's, you know, the, the negative stuff might not be as marketable, but it's just as relatable. Yeah. And, and I think that's always been the power behind blues and why it's, it's going to, it can leave a strong impression on people is because they've already had that impression from something else. They already have that footprint, that handprint on their soul. All you're doing is highlighting it again, right? you know, and, and showing them that they're, and I think that again, that's another draw to it or it, it, heavy, dark metal for you know, whatever you want to talk yeah. about. It, people are drawn to that because they relate to it. And, and we, I talked about this in the last episode where that's when you have to start to be careful is because music still has power and it's not, it's not magic. It's just impressions and it's, it's music impressing upon you. And that if you, bring on a darker song, you bring on something that isn't going to build a culture of what you are, or what you're trying to be as a character, as a person, an individual, an, an, an individual, then it can, you know, it'll, it'll take you different places. Um, but I mean, that's, that's the double side sword nature of music. But again, just getting back in the blues and while we're here at Zeppelin, um, that was a big part of their impact is they respected that they respected the, the power behind blues, the power behind, um, all their knowledge of music, but they wanted to make it have even more of an impression, have even more of an impact that when you listen to it, it's, it's not just gonna, Oh, you know, I can relate to that. It's also gonna, it's also gonna make you not know how to relate to it because of the crazy stylings that they're using while still using, uh, uh, relatable, uh, messages, lyrics, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, you're exactly right. And that's, you know, the, Led Zeppelin, like every band, evolved. And it, when you start getting towards the end, towards in through the outdoor and presence and even Coda to some extent, it, you know, it's a lot of the same themes. It's a lot of the same kind of self-reflective impact, mm -hmm. uh, just done in a different way. And if you strip it all down, the blues is still there. Um, but, you know, by this time they had synthesizers and they had different types of production and they had more access to things, more money to make the albums. Um, yeah. But you strip it all down. It's all the same. It's kind of this whole, you know, we're all human. <laughs> yeah. We all have the same things and uh, not to be too much of a downer here, but one way or another, I mean, you're going to end up in the ground. So mm it's it is what it is yeah well it's and that's one thing that this album is and it, <laughs> particularly this album it, it's it's that unapologetic kind of sound that 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 um that rough blues approach and that reality of life 
of like the hard moments, the weird moments, the uncomfortable things yeah. and the excitement. Yeah. I <laughs> um, want to thank our sponsors, Zoloft and Prozac. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> Just kidding. Please don't sue. Uh, don't sue Sam, especially, but also don't sue me. <laughs> but but yeah, I don't know. It's a great uh, rock album. But it's a great blues album. I don't know. And and one of the truly great debut albums in yeah. in the history of rock and roll. Yeah, I, I mean, I I really do. I I mean, and again, you know, you know how much I love the Beatles. But I think if I was ranking debut, debut albums, albums? Oh, I, yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I take this over. Please, please me. Yeah, um, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Know? Well, and it's just crazy because. Um, Trying out, I mean, casually trying to double think of what anybody else had like a you know explosive debut, but I mean, it wasn't just that they had a, a good debut album. I mean, half of it is half of that album or like classic tracks are there, so right. it's not just like yeah. oh, they they had uh, I, I saw her standing there, and that's the one that really yeah has held all these years. It's like not they too are like have that album for like. The whole time they were together, like, you know, it wasn't just, just like communication breakdown. That's the, that's the ticket. It was like half that album is still good, man. Well, that's, I mean, and again, except for that period where Jimmy finger, uh, Jimmy finger, Jimmy page had broken his finger. Um, you know, Dazed and Confused was played at every single concert, mm-hmm. except yeah. those like five when he physically was incapable of doing it. Yeah. Um, and it's, and, and, uh, uh, communication breakdown, same way you shook me was a staple, um, it is weird. They didn't play good times, bad times live much, but it, hmm. it's such a difficult, it's such a complicated song. I mean, they, uh, going back to what you were talking about with rock band and guitar hero, that kind oh, of stuff, yeah. uh-huh. you know, someone had approached Jimmy page about having a Led Zeppelin rock band, like uh-huh. the Beatles yeah. had. And, uh, they asked, they said, well, you know, what about just, just, uh, just the first album and Jimmy Page said, I don't think anyone could play the drum parts on rock band. Oh, wow. And it's, I, I mean, and maybe that's why they never really played it live much, but, um, it, it okay. is, but you're exactly like, right. I also feel like that might just be also trying to play into the, uh, the legend. Well, yeah, <laughs> maybe so. Cause I mean. There's some songs on Rock Band that are absolutely ridiculous. Oh yeah, and you need the double because you can have two bass uh, kick drum pedals. On oh, the can rock you band. really? Yeah, yeah. And there's some of them you need it, and there's no way you're going to do it without that. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I, I feel that. like that might just be them trying to maintain their yeah, the their legacy. Is. But still, I mean, Rabbit Foot, he was mad. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, watching some of that footage is nuts of him on a traditional like jazz set, just going like, oh yeah, crazy. Like, it's, it's, it's insane. Because yeah, I, I, there's like a time where Hendrix saw them play, and that's the he, that's what he called his that's what he called Bonham was Rabbit Foot. Yeah, it's like your foot was going nuts up there. Like what? <laughs> yeah, and that's I mean, you know, there were other guys just as fast. Uh, you know, Neil Peart. No one can deny that Neil Peart was a phenomenal drummer. Oh, I mean, yeah. I, I know rush isn't for everyone. Yeah. Um, oh, he's a monster. I mean, Mitch Mitchell was and Mitch great. Mitchell the same way. Keith moon yeah. to some extent, but you know, what's a, uh, no one does it like Bonzo. The, the doors drummer. I always forget his name. I always feel bad. I, about I, yeah. I can't, I can't remember. I That's, that's an album. That's a band we need to cover sometimes. Cause that will force me to relearn so, yeah, a bunch of stuff. Fresh. I used yeah. to know. Yeah. Uh, yeah we should. The yeah, one he, name that I can always remember besides Jim Morrison is Raymond. 
Hans Eric because mm. it's such a fun name to say. Well, I'm glad you're saying this right now because it gives me a chance to say one of the things that I like to bring up as a you know as a music person is I, I think Robbie Krieger, the guitarist for the Doors, is one of the most underappreciated guitarists of all time. I would agree with that. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, he, he's phenomenal. I mean, he and I, I know this is a Zeppelin thing, a weird thing to kind of end, wrap up on, but uh, he, you know, he only knew he had only been uh, taught the guitar for six months prior to joining the door. And yeah, never used the guitar pick. Always <laughs> picked it with his fingers and used the bottleneck slide um, that he made. Um, yeah. and that was it. That, that was it. You know, he came up with Light My Fire. Um, it was just always interesting that he was kind of a, the greenest person in the band. I mean, besides Morrison. Right. But then he, like, his stylings, like, in their songs were just so unique. And so, like, that's the door. It's like, no, that's freaking Robbie Krieger. Yeah, you can you can pick them out. That's for sure. Yeah. Pick him out, I should say. Yeah, he's really good. Um, how did we get here? I don't know. I get the point is if you love Led Zeppelin, listen to Morrison Hotel. <laughs> it is true. That's a good. It's a good blues uh, tangent of the Doors. Well, I mean, they have some blues stuff in in and out of their stuff. But oh yeah, yeah. that's a great one. Roadhouse Blues is oh, yeah. a classic. Yeah. Um, anyways, uh, anything else to add for Zeppelin? You're you're the bigger Zeppelin fan in the room. Oh, I just, uh, just thanks for having me again. It's been it's been a blast. We need to keep doing it. Yeah, it's, sure. it's so much fun. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. Like I said too, it's like it's it's been great to have to have a serious approach to a, uh, either a piece of work or to an artist and and uh, to understand them a little bit more um, or the world you know that they inherited or that the era they've got they went through you know because we're. We're on the outside looking in, yeah. so um, especially fifty years. Oh yeah, you know, so it's just total different world. Um, yeah, I mean, my my dad was in first grade when this album came yeah. out, so I was a long way off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think my dad was like, yeah, my dad was like ten when this album came yeah. out. Yeah, yeah, but still, yeah, it's a phenomenal album. Very happy that we went through it because I, I definitely do have a, a a better understanding and a deeper appreciation for sure. Yeah, I agree. Awesome. Great cool. album. Great work. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right, guys. Until next time. Thank you for listening. For more episodes, visit our website, musicmythpodcast.com, and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Goodbye. Goodbye.